0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 6 of Bleak House.
1: This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. BLEAK HOUSE BY CHARLES DICKENS CHAPTER Six. QUITE AT HOME The day had brightened very much, and still brightened as we went westward. We went our way through the sunshine and the fresh air, wondering more and more at the extent of the streets, the brilliancy of the shops, the great traffic, and the crowds of people whom the pleasanter weather seemed to have brought out like many-coloured flowers. By and by we began to leave the wonderful city and to proceed through suburbs which, of themselves, would have been a pretty large town in my eyes, and at last we got into a real country road again, with windmills, rickyards, milestones, farmers' waggons, scents of old hay, swinging signs and horse-troughs, trees, fields, and hedgerows. It was delightful to see the green landscape before us, and the immense metropolis behind. "'and when a waggon with a train of beautiful horses, "'furnished with red trappings and clear-sounding bells, "'came by us with its music, "'I believe we could all three have sung to the bells, "'so cheerful were the influences around it. "'The whole road has been reminding me of my namesake Whittington,' "'said Richard, and that waggon is the finishing touch. Hello, What's the matter?' "'We had stopped, and the waggon had stopped too.' Its music changed as the horses came to a stand, and subsided to a gentle tinkling, except when a horse tossed his head, or shook himself, and sprinkled off a little shower of bell-ringing. "'Our postillion is looking after the waggoner,' said Richard. "'And the waggoner is coming back after us. Good day, friend.' "'The waggoner was at our coach door.' "'Why, here's an extraordinary thing,' added Richard, looking closely at the man.' "'He has got your name, Ada, in his hat.' "'He had all our names in his hat. "'Tucked within the band were three small notes, "'one addressed to Ada, one to Richard, and one to me. "'These the waggoner delivered to each of us respectively, "'reading the name aloud first. "'In answer to Richard's inquiry, from whom they came, "'he briefly answered, "'Master, sir, if you please.' "'And putting on his hat again, which was like a soft bowl,' "'cracked his whip, reawakened his music, and went melodiously away. "'Is that Mr. John Dice's wagon?' said Richard, calling to our postboy. "'Yes, sir,' he replied. "'Going to London.' "'We opened the notes. "'Each was a counterpart of the other, and contained these words in a solid, plain hand.' I look forward, my dear, to our meeting easily, and without constraint, on either side. I therefore have to propose that we meet as old friends, and take the past for granted. It will be a relief to you, possibly, and to me certainly, and so my love to you. John John Jarndyce. I had perhaps less reason to be surprised than either of my companions, having never yet enjoyed an opportunity of thanking one who had been my benefactor and sole earthly dependence through so many years, I had not considered how I could thank him, my gratitude lying too deep in my heart for that, but now I began to consider how I could meet him without thanking him, and felt it would be very difficult indeed. The note survived in Richard and Ada a general impression that they both had without quite knowing how they came by it, that their cousin Jarndyce could never bear acknowledgments for any kindness he performed, and that sooner than receive any, he would resort to the most singular expedients and evasions, or would even run away. Ada dimly remembered to have heard her mother tell, when she was a very little child, that he had once done her an act of uncommon generosity, and that on her going to his house to thank him, he happened to see her through a window, coming to the door, and immediately escaped by the back gate, and was not heard of for three months. This discourse led to a great deal more on the same theme, and indeed it lasted us all day, and we talked of scarcely anything else. If we did, by any chance, diverge into another subject, we soon returned to this, and wondered what the house would be like, and when we should get there. "'and whether we should see Mr. Jarndyce "'as soon as we arrived, or after a delay, "'and what he would say to us, "'and what we should say to him, "'all of which we wondered about over and over again. "'The roads were very heavy for the horses, "'but the pathway was generally good, "'so we alighted and walked up all the hills, "'and liked it so well that we prolonged our walk "'on the level ground when we got to the top. "'At Barnet there were other horses waiting for us, but as they had only just been fed we had to wait for them too and got a long fresh walk over a common and an old battlefield before the carriage came up these delays so protracted the journey that the short day was spent and the long night had closed in before we came to st alban's near to which town bleak house was we knew by that time we were so anxious and nervous that even richard confessed as we rattled over the stones of the old street to feeling an irrational desire to drive back again as to ada and me whom he had wrapped up with great care the night being sharp and frosty we trembled from head to foot when we turned out of the town round a corner and richard told us that the post-boy who had for a long time sympathised with our heightened expectation was looking back and nodding "'we both stood up in the carriage, "'Richard holding Ada, lest she should be jolted down, "'and gazed round upon the open country "'and the starlight night for our destination. "'There was a light sparkling on the top of a hill before us, "'and the driver, pointing to it with his whip and crying, "'That's Blake House,' "'put his horses into a canter, "'and took us forward at such a rate, "'uphill though it was, "'that the wheels sent the road drift, "'flying about our heads like spray from a water-mill.' presently we lost the light presently saw it presently lost it presently saw it and turned into an avenue of trees and cantered up towards where it was beaming brightly it was in a window of what seemed to be an old-fashioned house with three peaks in the roof in front and a circular sweep leading to the porch a bell was rung as we drew up and amidst the sound of its deep voice in the still air and the distant barking of some dogs, and a gush of light from the open door, and the smoking and steaming of the heated horses, and the quickened beating of our own hearts, we alighted in no inconsiderable confusion. Ada, my love, Esther, my dear, you are welcome. I rejoice to see you. Rick, if I had a hand to spare at present, I would give it you. The gentleman who said these words, in a clear, bright, hospitable voice, had one of his arms round Ada's waist, and the other round mine, and kissed us both in a fatherly way, and bore us across the hall into a ruddy little room, all in a glow with a blazing fire. Here he kissed us again, and opening his arms, made us sit down side by side on a sofa, ready drawn out near the hearth. I felt that if we had been at all demonstrative— "'he would have run away in a moment. "'Now, Rick,' said he, "'I have a hand at liberty. "'A word in earnest is as good as a speech. "'I am heartily glad to see you. "'You are at home. "'Warm yourself.' "'Richard shook him by both hands, "'with an intuitive mixture of respect and frankness, "'and only saying, "'though with an earnestness that rather alarmed me, "'I was so afraid of Mr. John Dice's suddenly disappearing, "'You are very kind, sir,' "'we are very much obliged to you.' Laid aside his hat and coat, and came up to the fire. "'And how did you like the ride? "'And how did you like Mrs. Jellyby, my dear?' "'said Mr. Jarndyce to Ada. "'While Ada was speaking to him in reply, "'I glanced, I need not say with how much interest, at his face. "'It was a handsome, lively, quick face, "'full of change and motion, "'and his hair was a silvered iron-gray, I took him to be nearer sixty than fifty, but he was upright, hearty, and robust. From the moment of his first speaking to us, his voice had connected itself with an association in my mind that I could not define. But now, all at once, a something sudden in his manner, and a pleasant expression in his eyes, recalled the gentleman in the stage-coach, six years ago, on the memorable day of my journey to Reading. I was certain it was he. I never was so frightened in my life as when I made the discovery, for he caught my glance, and, appearing to read my thoughts, gave such a look at the door that I thought we had lost him. However, I am happy to say he remained where he was, and asked me what I thought of Mrs. Jellyby. "'She exerts herself very much for Africa, sir,' I said. "'Nobly,' returned Mr. Jarndyce. "'But you answer like Ada.' whom I had not heard. "'You all think something else, I see.' "'We rather thought,' said I, glancing at Richard and Ada, who entreated me with their eyes to speak, "'that, perhaps, she was a little unmindful of her home.' Lord cried Mr. Jarndyce. "'I was rather alarmed again.' "'Well, I want to know your real thoughts, my dear.' "'I may have sent you there on purpose.' "'We thought that perhaps,' said I, hesitating, "'it is right to begin with the obligations of home, sir, "'and that perhaps, while those are overlooked and neglected, "'no other duties can possibly be substituted for them.' "'The little jelly-bees,' said Richard, coming to my relief, "'are really—I <laughs> can't help expressing myself strongly, sir— in a devil of a state she means well said mr jarndyce hastily the wind's in the east it was in the north sir as we came down observed richard my dear rick said mr jarndyce poking the fire "'I'll take an oath it's either in the east or going to be. "'I am always conscious of an uncomfortable sensation now and then "'when the wind is blowing in the east.' "'Rheumatism, sir,' said Richard. "'I dare say it is, Rick. I believe it is. "'And so the little (sighs) gel—' "'I had my doubts about them—' "'are in a—' "'Oh, Lord, yes, it's easterly.' "'said Mr. Jarndyce. "'He had taken two or three undecided turns up and down, "'while uttering these broken sentences, "'retaining the poker in one hand, "'and rubbing his hair with the other, "'with a good-natured vexation, "'at once so whimsical and so lovable, "'that I am sure we were more delighted with him "'than we could possibly have expressed in any words. "'He gave an arm to Ada, and an arm to me, "'and bidding Richard bring a candle, "'was leading the way out, "'when he suddenly turned us all back again.' Those little jelly bees, couldn't you? Didn't didn't you? Now, if it had rained sugar plums or three-cornered raspberry tarts or anything of that sort, said Mister Jarndyce. Oh, cousin, Ada hastily began. Good, my pretty pet. I like cousin. Cousin John perhaps is better. Then, cousin John. Ada laughingly began again, <laughs> oh, very good indeed, said Mr. Jarndyce with great enjoyment. Sounds uncommonly natural, yes, my dear, it did better than that. It rained esther I said, Mr. Jarndyce, what did esther do? why, cousin John said Ada clasping her hands upon his arm and shaking her head at me across him for I wanted her to be quiet esther was their friend directly esther nursed them coaxed them to sleep washed and dressed them told them stories kept them quiet bought them keepsakes my dear girl i had only gone out with peepy after he was found and given him a little tiny horse "'And, Cousin John, she softened poor Caroline, the eldest one, so much, and was so thoughtful for me, and so amiable. No, no, I won't be contradicted, Esther, dear. You know, you know it's true.' The warm-hearted darling leaned across her Cousin John and kissed me, and then, looking up in his face, boldly said, "'At all events, Cousin John, I will thank you for the companion you have given me.' I felt as if she challenged him to run away, but he didn't. "'Where did you say the wind was, Rick?' asked Mr. Jarndyce. "'In the north, as we came down, sir. "'You are right. There's no east in it. A mistake of mine. "'Come, girls, come and see your home.' "'It was one of those delightfully irregular houses.' "'where you go up and down steps out of one room into another, "'and where you come upon more rooms "'when you think you have seen all there are, "'and where there is a bountiful provision of little halls and passages, "'and where you find still older cottage rooms in unexpected places, "'with lattice windows and green growth pressing through them. "'Mine, which we entered first, was of this kind, "'with an up-and-down roof that had more corners in it "'than I ever counted afterwards, and a chimney.' "'There was a wood-fire on the hearth, paved all round with pure white tiles, in every one of which a bright miniature of the fire was blazing. "'Out of this room he went down two steps into a charming little sitting-room, looking down upon a flower-garden, which room was henceforth to belong to Ada and me. "'Out of this he went up three steps into Ada's bedroom, which had a fine, broad window, commanding a beautiful view.' We saw a great expanse of darkness lying underneath the stars, to which there was a hollow window-seat, in which, with a spring-lock, three dear Adas might have been lost at once. Out of this room you passed into a little gallery, with which the other best rooms, only two, communicated, and so, by a little staircase of shallow steps with a number of corner stairs in it, considering its length, down into the hall. But if, instead of going out at Ada's door, you came back into my room, and went out at the door by which you had entered it, and turned up a few crooked steps that branched off in an unexpected manner from the stairs, you lost yourself in passages, with mangles in them, and three-cornered tables and a native Hindu chair, which was also a sofa, a box, and a bedstead, and looked in every form something between a bamboo skeleton and a great bird-cage, and had been brought from India nobody knew by whom or when.' "'From these you came on Richard's room, "'which was part library, part sitting-room, part bedroom, "'and seemed, indeed, a comfortable compound of many rooms. "'Out of that you went straight, with a little interval of passage, "'to the plain room where Mr. Jarndyce slept all the year round, "'with his window open, his bedstead without any furniture, "'standing in the middle of the floor for more air, "'and his cold bath gaping for him in a smaller room adjoining.' "'Out of that you came into another passage, where there were back stairs, "'and where you could hear the horses being rubbed down outside the stable, "'and being told to hold up and get over, "'as they slipped about very much on the uneven stones. "'Or you might, if you came out at another door, "'every room had at least two doors, "'go straight down to the hall again by half a dozen steps and a low archway, "'wondering how you got back there or had ever got out of it the furniture old-fashioned rather than old like the house was as pleasantly irregular ada's sleeping-room was all flowers in chintz and paper in velvet and needlework in the brocade of two stiff courtly chairs which stood each attended by a little page of a stool for greater state on either side of the fireplace our sitting-room was green and had framed and glazed upon the walls numbers of surprising and surprised birds staring out of pictures at a real trout in a case, as brown and shining as if it had been served with gravy, at the death of Captain Cook, and at the whole process of preparing tea in China, as depicted by Chinese artists. In my room there were oval engravings of the months, ladies hay-making in short waists and large hats tied under their chin, for June, smooth-legged noblemen pointing with cocked hats to village steeples, for October, half-length portraits and crayons abounded all through the house, but were so dispersed that I found the brother of a youthful officer of mine in the china-closet, and the grey old age of my pretty young bride, with a flower in her bodice in the breakfast-room. As substitutes, I had four angels, of Queen Anne's reign, taking a complacent gentleman to heaven, in festoons, with some difficulty, and a composition in needlework representing fruit, a kettle, and an alphabet.' All the movables, from the wardrobes to the chairs and tables, hangings, glasses, even to the pincushions and scent-bottles on the dressing-tables, displayed the same quaint variety. They agreed in nothing but their perfect neatness. Their display of the whitest linen, and their storing up, wheresoever the existence of a drawer, small or large, rendered it possible, of quantities of rose-leaves and sweet lavender. Such, with its illuminated windows— "'softened here and there by shadows of curtains, "'shining out upon the starlight night, "'with its light and warmth and comfort, "'with its hospitable jingle at a distance, "'of preparations for dinner, "'with the face of its generous master "'brightening everything we saw, "'and just wind enough, without to sound "'a low accompaniment to everything we heard, "'were our first impressions of Bleak House. "'I am glad you like it.' said Mr. Jarndyce, when he had brought us round again to Ada's sitting-room. "'It makes no pretensions, but it is a comfortable little place, I hope, and will be more so with such bright, young looks in it. You have barely half an hour before dinner. There's no one here but the finest creature upon earth—a child.' "'More children, Esther,' said Ada. "'I don't mean literally a child.' "'Pursued Mr. Jarndyce?' "'Not a child in years. "'He has grown up. "'He is at least as old as I am. "'But in simplicity, and freshness, and enthusiasm, "'and a fine, guileless inaptitude for all worldly affairs, "'he is a perfect child.' "'We felt that he must be very interesting.' "'He knows Mrs. Jellyby," said Mr. Jarndyce. "'He is a musical man, an amateur, but might have been a professional.' "'He is an artist, too—an amateur, but might have been a professional. "'He is a man of attainments, and of captivating manners. "'He has been unfortunate in his affairs, and unfortunate in his pursuits, "'and unfortunate in his family. "'But he don't care. He's a child.' "'Did you imply that he has children of his own, sir?' "'Inquired Richard.' "'Yes, Rick. Half a dozen. More.' Nearer a dozen, I should think. But he has never looked after them. How could he? He wanted somebody to look after him. He is a child, you know, said Mr. Jarndyce. And have the children looked after themselves at all, sir? inquired Richard. Why, just as you may suppose, said Mr. Jarndyce, his countenance suddenly falling. "'It is said that the children of the very poor are not brought up, but dragged up. Harold Skimpole's children have tumbled up, somehow or other. The wind's getting round again. I'm afraid I feel it, rather.' "'Richard observed that the situation was exposed on a sharp night.' "'It is exposed,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'No doubt that's the cause.' "'The house has an exposed sound, but you are coming my way. "'Come along.' "'Our luggage having arrived, and being all at hand, "'I was dressed in a few minutes, "'and engaged in putting my worldly goods away, "'when a maid, not the one in attendance upon Ada, "'but another, whom I had not seen, "'brought a basket into my room, "'with two bunches of keys in it, all labelled. "'For you, miss, if you please,' said she, "'For me?' said I. "'The housekeeping keys, miss.' "'I showed my surprise, "'for she added with some little surprise on her own part, "'I was told to bring them as soon as you was alone, miss. "'Miss Summerson, if I don't deceive myself.' "'Yes,' said I. "'That is my name.' "'The large bunch is the housekeeping.' "'and the little bunch is the cellars, miss. "'Any time you was pleased to appoint to-morrow morning, "'I was to show you the presses and things they belong to.' "'I said I would be ready at half-past six, "'and after she was gone, stood looking at the basket, "'quite lost in the magnitude of my trust. "'Ada found me thus.' "'and had such a delightful confidence in me "'when I showed her the keys and told her about them, "'that it would have been insensibility and ingratitude "'not to feel encouraged. "'I knew, to be sure, that it was the dear girl's kindness, "'but I liked to be so pleasantly cheated. "'When we went downstairs, we were presented to Mr. Skimpole, "'who was standing before the fire, "'telling Richard how fond he used to be "'in his school-time of football.' he was a little bright creature with a rather large head but a delicate face and a sweet voice and there was a perfect charm in him all he said was so free from effort and spontaneous and was said with such a captivating gaiety that it was fascinating to hear him talk being of a more slender figure than mr jarndyce and having a richer complexion with browner hair he looked younger indeed he had more the appearance in all respects of a damaged young man than a well-preserved elderly one there was an easy negligence in his manner and even in his dress his hair carelessly disposed and his neckerchief loose and flowing as i have seen artists paint their own portraits which i could not separate from the idea of a romantic youth who had undergone some unique process of depreciation it struck me as being not at all like the manner or appearance of a man who had advanced in life by the usual roads of years cares and experiences I gathered from the conversation that Mr. Skimpole had been educated for the medical profession, and had once lived, in his professional capacity, in the household of a German prince. He told us, however, that as he had always been a mere child in point of weights and measures, and had never known anything about them, except that they disgusted him, he had never been able to prescribe with the requisite accuracy of detail. In fact, he said, he had no head for detail and he told us with great humour that when he was wanted to bleed the prince or physic any of his people he was generally found lying on his back in bed reading the newspapers or making fancy sketches in pencil and couldn't come the prince at last objecting to this in which said mr skimpole in the frankest manner he was perfectly right the engagement terminated and mr skimpole having as he added with delightful gaiety "'Nothing to live upon but love, A fell in love, and married, and surrounded himself with rosy chicks.' His good friend Jarndyce and some other of his good friends, then helped him, in quicker or slower succession, to several openings in life, but to no purpose, for he must confess to two of the oldest infirmities in the world. One was that he had no idea of time, the other that he had no idea of money, in consequence of which he never kept an appointment, never could transact any business, and never knew the value of anything. Well, so he had got on in life, and here he was. He was very fond of reading the papers, very fond of making fancy sketches of the pencil, very fond of nature, very fond of art. All he asked of society was to let him live. That wasn't much. His wants were few. Give him the papers, conversation, music, mutton, coffee, landscape, fruit in the season, a few sheets of bristol board, and a little claret, and he asked no more. He was a mere child in the world, but he didn't cry for the moon, he said to the world, Go your several ways in peace, wear red coats, blue lawn sleeves put pens behind your ears wear aprons go after to glory holiness commerce trade any object you prefer only let harold skimpole live all this and a great deal more he told us not only with the utmost brilliancy and enjoyment but with a certain vivacious candour speaking of himself as if he were not at all his own affair, as if Skimpole were a third person, as if he knew that Skimpole had his singularities, but still had his claims too, which were the general business of the community, and must not be slighted. He was quite enchanting. If I felt at all confused at that early time, in endeavouring to reconcile anything he said with anything I had thought about the duties and accountabilities of life, which I am far from sure of, I was confused by not exactly understanding— why he was free of them, that he was free of them. I scarcely doubt it. He was so very clear about it himself. "'I covet nothing,' said Mr. Skimpole, in the same light way. "'Possession is nothing to me. Here is my friend John Dice's excellent house. I feel obliged to him for possessing it. I can sketch it, and alter it. I can set it to music.' "'When I am here, I have sufficient possession of it, "'and have neither trouble, cost, nor responsibility. "'My steward's name, in short, is John Dice, "'and he can't cheat me. "'We have been mentioning Mrs. Jellyby. "'There is a bright-eyed woman of a strong will "'and immense power of business detail "'who throws herself into objects with surprising ardour. I don't regret that I have not a strong will and an immense power of business detail to throw myself into objects with surprising ardour. I can admire her without envy. I can sympathise with the object. I can dream of them. I can lie down on the grass, in fine weather, and float along an African river, embracing all the natives I meet, as sensible of the deep silence and sketching the dense, overhanging tropical growth, as accurately as if I were there. I don't know that it's of any direct use my doing so, but it's all I can do, and I do it thoroughly then for heaven's sake having harold skimpole a confiding child petitioning you the world and agglomeration of practical people of business habits to let him live and admire the human family do it somehow or other like good souls and suffer him to ride his rocking horse it was plain enough that mr john Dyce had not been neglectful of the adjuration Mr. Skimpole's general position there would have rendered it so without the addition of what he presently said. "'It's only you, the generous creatures, whom I envy,' said Mr. Skimpole, addressing us, his new friends, in an impersonal manner. "'I envy you your power of doing what you do. It is what I should revel in myself. I don't feel any.' vulgar gratitude to you i almost feel as if you ought to be grateful to me for giving you the opportunity of enjoying the luxury of generosity i know you like it "'For anything I can tell, I may have come into the world expressly for the purpose of increasing your stock of happiness. "'I may have been born to be a benefactor to you "'by sometimes giving you an opportunity of assisting me "'in my little perplexities. "'Why should I regret my incapacity for details and worldly affairs "'when it leads to such pleasant consequences?' "'I don't regret it, therefore.' Of all his playful speeches, playful yet always fully meaning what they expressed, none seemed to be more to the taste of Mr. John Dyce than this. I had often new temptations afterwards to wonder whether it was really singular, or only singular to me, that he, who was probably the most grateful of mankind upon the least occasion, should so desire to escape the gratitude of others. We were all enchanted. I felt it a merited tribute to the engaging qualities of Ada and Richard, that Mr. Skimpole, seeing them for the first time, should be so unreserved, and should lay himself out to be so exquisitely agreeable. They, and especially Richard, were naturally pleased, for similar reasons, and considered it no common privilege to be so freely confided in by such an attractive man. The more we listened, the more gaily Mr. Skimpole talked— and what with his fine hilarious manner and his engaging candour and his genial way of lightly tossing his own weaknesses about as if he had said i am a child you know you are designing people compared with me he really made me consider myself in that light but i am gay and innocent forget your worldly arts "'and play with me.' "'The effect was absolutely dazzling. "'He was so full of feeling, too, "'and had such a delicate sentiment "'for what was beautiful or tender, "'that he could have won a heart by that alone. "'In the evening, when I was preparing to make tea, "'and Ada was touching the piano in the adjoining room, "'and softly humming a tune to her cousin Richard, "'which they had happened to mention, "'he came and sat down on the sofa near me, "'and so spoke of Ada,' "'that I almost loved him. "'She is like the morning,' he said. "'With that golden hair, those blue eyes, "'and that fresh bloom on her cheek, "'she is like the summer morning. "'The birds here will mistake her for it. "'We will not call such a lovely young creature as that, "'who is a joy to all mankind, an orphan. "'She is the child.' "'of the universe.' "'Mr. Jarndyce, I found, "'was standing near us with his hands behind him, "'and an attentive smile upon his face. "'The universe,' he observed, "'makes rather an indifferent parent, I'm afraid. "'Oh, I don't know,' "'cried Mr. Skimpole buoyantly. "'I think I do know,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'Well,' cried mr skimpole you know the world which in your sense is the universe and i know nothing of it so you shall have your way but if i had mine glancing at the cousins there should be no brambles of sordid realities in such a path as that it should be strewn with roses it should lie through bowers where there was no spring autumn nor winter but perpetual summer age or change should never wither it the base word money should never be breathed near it mr jarndyce patted him on the head with a smile as if he had been really a child and passing a step or two on and stopping a moment glanced at the young cousins his look was thoughtful but had a benignant expression in it which i often how often saw again which has long been engraven on my heart the room in which they were communicating with that in which he stood was only lighted by the fire ada sat at the piano richard stood beside her bending down upon the wall their shadows blended together, surrounded by strange forms, not without a ghostly motion caught from the unsteady fire, though reflecting from motionless objects. Ada touched the notes so softly, and sang so low, that the wind, sighing away to the distant hills, was as audible as the music. The mystery of the future, and the little clue afforded to it by the voice of the present, seemed expressed in the whole picture. But it is not to recall this fancy, well as I remember it, that I recall the scene. First, I was not quite unconscious of the contrast in respect of meaning and intention between the silent look directed that way, and the flow of words that had preceded it. Secondly, though Mr. John Dice's glance, as he withdrew it, rested but for a moment on me, I felt as if in that moment he confided to me and knew that he confided to me, and that I received the confidence, his hope that Ada and Richard might one day enter on a dearer relationship. Mr. Skimpole could play on the piano, and the violoncello, and he was a composer, had composed half an opera once, but got tired of it, and played what he composed with taste. After tea we had quite a little concert, in which Richard, who was enthralled by Ada's singing, and told me that she seemed to know all the songs that ever were written, and Mr. Jarndyce and I were the audience. After a little while I missed first Mrs. Skimpole, and afterwards Richard. And while I was thinking, how could Richard stay away so long and lose so much, the maid who had given me the keys looked in at the door, saying, "'If you please, miss, could you spare a minute?' When I was shut out with her in the hall, she said, holding up her hands, "'Oh, if you please, Miss, Mr. Carstone says would you come upstairs to Mr. Skimpole's room. He's been took, Miss.' "'Took?' said I. "'Took, Miss, sudden,' said the maid. I was apprehensive that his illness might be of a dangerous kind, but of course I begged her to be quiet, and not disturb any one, and collected myself, as I followed her quickly upstairs, sufficiently to consider what were the best remedies to be applied, if it should prove to be a fit. She threw open a door, and I went into a chamber, where, to my unspeakable surprise, instead of finding Mr. Skimpole stretched upon the bed, or prostrate on the floor, I found him standing before the fire smiling at Richard, while Richard, with a face of great embarrassment, looked at a person on the sofa, in a white greatcoat, with smooth hair upon his head, and not much of it, which he was wiping smoother, and making less of, with a pocket-handkerchief. "'Miss Summerson,' said Richard hurriedly, "'I am glad you are come. You will be able to advise us. Our friend Mr. Skimpole—don't be alarmed—is arrested for debt.' and really my dear miss Summerson, said mr Skimpole with his agreeable candour i never was in a situation in which that excellent sense and quiet habit of method and usefulness which anybody must observe in you who has the happiness of being a quarter of an hour in your society was more needed the person on the sofa who appeared to have a cold in his head, gave such a very loud snort that he startled me. "'Are you arrested for much, sir?' I inquired of Mr. Skimpole. "'My dear Miss Summerson,' said he, shaking his head pleasantly, "'I don't know. Some pounds, odd shillings, and, uh, ha'pence halfpence, I think, were mentioned.' "'It's twenty-four pounds, sixteen, and seven-pence-a'penny,' observed the stranger. "'That's what it is. "'And it sounds—' "'Somehow it sounds,' said Mr. Skimpole, "'like a small sum." The strange man said nothing, but made another snort. It was such a powerful one, that it seemed quite to lift him out of his seat. "'Mr. Skimpole,' said Richard to me, has a delicacy in applying to my cousin john dyce because he has lately i think sir i understood you that you had lately oh yes returned mr skimpole smiling though i forgot how much it was and when it was john Dice would readily do it again but i have the epicure-like feeling that i would prefer a novelty in help "'that I would rather,' and he looked at Richard and me, "'develop generosity in a new soil, and in a new form of flower.' Uh, "'What do you think will be best, Miss Summerson?' said Richard aside. "'I ventured to inquire, generally before replying, "'what would happen if the money were not produced?' Gio said the strange man. "'coolly putting his handkerchief into his hat, "'which was on the floor at his feet. "'Or Corvinces.' "'May I ask, sir, what is Corvinces?' "'said the strange man. "'A house.' "'Richard and I looked at one another again. "'It was a most singular thing that the arrest was our embarrassment "'and not Mr. Skimpole's. "'He observed us with a genial interest.' but there seemed, if I may venture in such a contradiction, nothing selfish in it. He had entirely washed his hands of the difficulty, and it had become ours. I uh, thought, he suggested, as if good-naturedly to help us out, that being parties in a chancery suit concerning, as people say, a large amount of property, mr richard or his beautiful cousin or both could sign something or make over something or give some sort of undertaking or pledge or bond i don't know what the business name of it may be but i suppose there is some instrument within their power that would settle this not a bit on it said the strange man "'Really?' returned Mr. Skimpole. "'That seems odd now to one who is no judge of these things.' "'Odd or even,' said the stranger gruffly. "'I tell you, not a bit on it. "'Keep your temper, my good fellow, keep your temper.' Mr. Skimpole gently reasoned with him, as he made a little drawing of his head on the fly-leaf of a book. "'Don't be ruffled by your occupation. We can separate you from your office. We can separate the individual from the pursuit. We are not so prejudiced as to suppose that in private life you are otherwise than a very estimable man with a great deal of poetry in your nature of which you may not be conscious the stranger only answered with another violent snort whether in acceptance of the poetry tribute or in disdainful rejection of it he did not express to me now my dear miss summerson and my dear mr richard said mr skimpole gaily "'innocently and confidingly, as he looked at his drawing with his head on one side, "'Here you see me utterly incapable of helping myself, and entirely in your hands. "'I only ask to be free. The butterflies are free. "'Mankind will surely not deny to Harold Skimpole what it concedes to the butterflies.' "'My dear Miss Summerson," said Richard, in a whisper, "'I have ten pounds that I received from Mr. Kenge. I must try what that will do.' I possessed fifteen pounds odd shillings, which I had saved from my quarterly allowance during several years. I had always thought that some accident might happen, which would throw me suddenly, without any relation or any property, on the world, and had always tried to keep some little money by me, that I might not be quite penniless.' I told Richard of my having this little store, and having no present need of it, and I asked him delicately to inform Mr. Skimpole, while I should be gone to fetch it, that we would have the pleasure of paying his debt. When I came back, Mr. Skimpole kissed my hand, and seemed quite touched, not on his own account I was again aware of that perplexing and extraordinary contradiction, but on ours, as if personal considerations were impossible with him, and the contemplation of our happiness alone affected him. "'Richard, begging me, for the greater grace of the transaction, as he said, to settle with Covince's, as Mr. Skimpole now jocularly called him, I counted out the money, and received the necessary acknowledgement. This, too, delighted Mr. Skimpole. His compliments were so delicately administered, that I blushed less than I might have done, and settled with the stranger in the white coat, without making any mistakes. He put the money in his pocket, and shortly said, "'Well, then,' "'I'll wish you a good evening, miss.' "'My friend,' said Mr. Skimpole, "'standing with his back to the fire, "'after giving up the sketch when it was half finished, "'I should like to ask you something, without offence. "'I think the reply was, "'Cut away, then. "'Did you know this morning, now, "'that you were coming out on this errand?' "'said Mr. Skimpole.' "'Knowed it yesterday afternoon at tea-time,' said Covinses. "'It didn't affect your appetite? "'Didn't make you at all uneasy?' "'Not a bit,' said Covinses. "'I knowed if you was missed to-day, "'you wouldn't be missed tomorrow. "'A day makes no such odds. "'But when you came down here, "'proceeded Mr. Skimpole. "'It was a fine day. "'The sun was shining, the wind was blowing, "'the lights and shadows were passing across the fields, "'the birds were singing. "'Nobody said they want in my hearing,' returned Covince's. "'No,' observed Mr. Skimpole. "'But what did you think upon the road?' "'What do you mean?' Growled Covinces with an appearance of strong resentment. "'Think? Oh, "'I've got enough to do, and little enough to get for it without thinking. "'Thinking!' "'With profound contempt. "'Then you didn't think at all events,' "'proceeded Mr. Skimpole. "'To this effect.' harold skimpole loves to see the sunshine loves to hear the wind blow loves to watch the changing lights and shadows loves to hear the birds those choristers in nature's great cathedral and does it seem to me that i am about to deprive harold skimpole of his share in such possessions which are his only birthright you thought nothing to that effect "'I certainly did not,' said Covincis, whose doggedness in utterly renouncing the idea was of that intense kind, that he could only give adequate expression to by putting a long interval between each word, and accompanying the last with a jerk that might have dislocated his neck. "'Very odd and very curious the mental process is in you men of business.' "'said Mr. Skimpole thoughtfully. "'Thank you, my friend. Good-night.' "'As our absence had been long enough already "'to seem strange downstairs, I returned at once, "'and found Ada sitting at work by the fireside, "'talking to her cousin John. "'Mr. Skimpole presently appeared, "'and Richard shortly after him i was sufficiently engaged during the remainder of the evening in taking my first lesson in backgammon from mr jarndyce who was very fond of the game and from whom i wished of course to learn it as quickly as i could in order that i might be of the very small use of being able to play when he had no better adversary but I thought occasionally when mr Skimpole played some fragment of his own compositions or when both at the piano and the violoncello and at our table he preserved with an absence of all effort his delightful spirits and his easy flow of conversation that Richard and I seemed to retain the transferred impression of having been arrested since dinner and that it was very curious altogether it was late before we separated for when ada was going at eleven o'clock "'Mr. Skimpole went to the piano, and rattled hilariously "'that the best of all ways to lengthen our days "'was to steal a few hours from night, my dear. "'It was past twelve before he took his candle "'and his radiant face out of the room, "'and I think he might have kept us there, "'if he had seen fit, until daybreak. "'Ada and Richard were lingering for a few moments by the fire, "'wondering whether Mrs. Jellyby had yet finished her dictation for the day, "'when Mr. Jarndyce, who had been out of the room, returned.' oh dear me what's this what's this he said rubbing his head and walking about with his good-humoured vexation what's this they tell me rick my boy esther my dear what have you been doing why did you do it how could you do it how much a piece was it the wind's round again i feel it all over me we neither of us quite knew what to answer "'Come, Rick, come. "'I must settle this before I sleep. "'How much are you out of pocket? "'You two made the money up, you know. "'Why did you? "'How could you? "'Oh, Lord, yes, it's due east. "'Must be.' "'Really, sir,' said Richard. "'I don't think it would be honourable in me to tell you. "'Mr. Skimpole relied upon us. "'Lord bless you, my dear boy.' he relies upon everybody said mr jarndyce giving his head a great rub and stopping short indeed sir everybody and he'll be in the same scrape again next week said mr jarndyce walking again at a great pace with a candle in his hand that had gone out he's always in the same scrape he was born in the same scrape "'I verily believe the announcement in the newspapers when his mother was confined "'was, on Tuesday last at her residence in Botheration buildings, "'Mrs. Skimpole of a son in difficulties.' "'Richard laughed heartily, but added, "'Still, sir, I don't want to shake his confidence or to break his confidence, "'and if I submit to your better knowledge again, that I ought to keep his secret, "'I hope you will consider before you press me any more.' of course if you do press me sir i shall know i am wrong and will tell you well cried mr jarndyce stopping again and making several absent endeavours to put his candlestick in his pocket i here take it away my dear i don't know what i am about with it it's all the wind invariably has that effect i won't press you rick you may be right But really, to get hold of you and Esther, and to squeeze you like a couple of tender young St. Michael's oranges, it'll blow a gale in the course of the night.' He was now alternately putting his hands into his pockets, as if he were going to keep them there a long time, and taking them out again, and vehemently rubbing them all over his head. I ventured to take this opportunity of hinting that Mr. Skimpole being in all such matters quite a child. "'Eh, my dear?' said Mr. Jarndyce, couching at the word. Being quite a child, sir, said I, and so different from other people. You are right, said Mr. Jarndyce, brightening. Your woman's wit hits the mark. He is a child, an absolute child. I told you he was a child, you know, when I first mentioned him. Certainly, certainly, we said. And he is a child. Now, isn't he? asked Mr. Jarndyce, brightening more and more. He was indeed, we said. When you come to think of it, it's the height of childishness is in you, I, I mean me, said Mr. Jarndyce, to regard him for a moment as a man. You can't make him responsible. The idea of Harold skimpole, with designs, or plans, or knowledge of consequences! (laughs) It was so delicious to see the clouds about his bright face clearing, and to see him so heartily pleased, and to know, as it was impossible not to know, that the source of his pleasure was the goodness which was tortured by condemning, or mistrusting, or secretly accusing any one, "'that I saw the tears in Ada's eyes, while she echoed his laugh, and felt them in my own.' "'Why, what a cod's head and shoulders I am,' said Mr. Jarndyce, "'to require reminding of it. The whole business shows the child from beginning to end. Nobody but a child would have thought of singling you two out for parties in the affair. Nobody but a child would have thought of your having the money.' If it had been a thousand pounds it would have been just the same, said mr Jarndyce with his whole face in a glow. We all confirmed it from our night's experience. To be sure, to be sure, said mr Jarndyce. However, Rick, Esther, and you too, Ada, for I don't know that even your little purse is safe from his inexperience, I must have a promise all round that nothing of this sort shall ever be done any more. No advances, not even sixpences. We all promised faithfully, Richard, with a merry glance at me, touching his pocket as if to remind me that there was no danger of our transgressing as to Skimpole, said Mr. Jarndyce. A habitable doll's house, with good board, and a few tin people to get into debt with and borrow money of, would set the boy up in life. He is in a child's sleep by this time, I suppose. It's time I should take my craftier head to my more worldly pillow. Good night, my dears. God bless you." He peeped in again, with a smiling face, before we had lighted our candles, and said, "'Oh, I have been looking at the weathercock.' "'I find it was a false alarm about the wind. "'It's in the south,' and went away singing to himself. "'Ada and I agreed, as we talked together for a little while upstairs, "'that this caprice about the wind was a fiction, "'and that he used the pretense to account for any disappointment he could not conceal, "'rather than he would blame the real cause of it, or disparage or depreciate any one.' We thought this very characteristic of his eccentric gentleness, and of the difference between him and those petulant people who make the weather and the winds, particularly that unlucky wind which he had chosen for such a different purpose, the stalking horses of their spinetic and gloomy humours. Indeed, so much affection for him had been added in this one evening to my gratitude that I hoped I already began to understand him through that mingled feeling— any seeming inconsistencies in Mr. Skimpole, or in Mrs. Jellyby, I could not expect to be able to reconcile, having so little experience or practical knowledge. Neither did I try, for my thoughts were busy when I was alone, with Ada and Richard, and with the confidence I had seemed to receive concerning them. My fancy made a little wild by the wind, perhaps, would not consent to be all unselfish either, though I would have persuaded it to be so if I could, it wandered back to my godmother's house, and came along the intervening track, raising up shadowy speculations, which had sometimes trembled there in the dark, as to what knowledge Mr. Jarndyce had of my earliest history, even as to the possibility of his being my father, though that idle dream was quite gone now. It was all gone now. I remembered, getting up from the fire, it was not for me to amuse over bygones, but to act with a cheerful spirit and a grateful heart. So I said to myself, Esther, 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 duty, my dear, and gave my little basket of housekeeping keys such a shake, that they sounded like little bells, and rang me hopefully to bed. End of chapter Six. Chapter Seven of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens, Chapter Seven, The Ghosts Walk. While Esther sleeps and while Esther wakes, it is still wet weather down at the place in Lincolnshire. The rain is ever falling, drip, drip drip, by day and night, upon the broad-flagged terrace pavement, the ghosts' walk. The weather is so very bad down in Lincolnshire, that the liveliest imagination can scarcely apprehend its ever being fine again. Not that there is any superabundant life of imagination on the spot, for Sir Leicester is not here, and truly, even if he were, would not do much for it in that particular, but is in Paris with my lady." and solitude with dusky wings sits brooding upon chesney wold there may be some motions of fancy among the lower animals at chesney wold the horses in the stables the long stables in a barren red-brick courtyard where there is a great bell in a turret and a clock with a large face which the pigeons who live near it and who love to perch upon its shoulders seem to be always consulting They may contemplate some mental pictures of the fine weather on occasions, and may be better artists at them than the grooms. The old roan, so famous for cross-country work, turning his large eyeball to the grated window near his rack, may remember the fresh leaves that glisten there at other times, and the scents that stream in, and may have a fine run with the hounds, while the human helper, clearing out the next stall, never stirs beyond his pitchfork and birch broom the grey, whose place is opposite the door, and who, with an impatient rattle of his halter, pricks his ears and turns his head so wistfully when it is opened, and to whom the opener says, "'Woe, grey, then, steady! Nobody wants you to-day!' may know it quite as well as the man. The whole, seemingly monotonous and uncompanionable half-dozen, stabled together, may pass the long wet hours when the door is shut in livelier communication than is held in the servants hall or at the deadlock arms or may even beguile the time by improving perhaps corrupting the pony in the loose-box in the corner so the mastiff dozing in his kennel in the courtyard with his large head on his paws may think of the hot sunshine when the shadows of the stable buildings tire his patience out by changing and leaving him at one time of the day no broader refuge than the shadow of his own house, where he sits on end, panting and growling short, and very much wanting something to worry besides himself and his chain. So now, half-waking and all-winking, he may recall the house full of company, the coach-house full of vehicles, the stables full of horses, and the outbuildings full of attendants upon horses, until he is undecided about the present, and comes forth to see how it is then with an impatient shake of himself he may growl in the spirit rain 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 nothing but rain and no family here as he goes in again and lies down with a gloomy yawn so with the dogs in the kennel buildings across the park who have their restless fits and whose doleful voices when the wind has been very obstinate have even made it known in the house itself upstairs downstairs and in my lady's chamber "'They may hunt the whole countryside, while the raindrops are pattering round their inactivity. "'So the rabbits, with their self-betraying tails, frisking in and out of holes at roots "'of trees, may be lively with ideas of the breezy days, when their ears are blown about, "'or of those seasons of interest, when there are sweet young plants to gnaw. "'The turkey in the poultry-yard, always troubled with a class grievance, probably Christmas, may be reminiscent of that summer morning wrongfully taken from him when he got into the lane among the felled trees where there was a barn and barley the discontented goose who stoops to pass under the old gateway twenty feet high may gabble out if we only knew it a waddling preference for weather when the gateway casts its shadow on the ground be this as it may there is not much fancy otherwise staring at chesney wold If there be a little, at any odd moment, it goes, like a little noise in that old echoing place, a long way, and usually leads off to ghosts and mystery. It has rained so hard, and rained so long, down in Lincolnshire, that Mrs. Ranswell, the old housekeeper at Chesney Wold, has several times taken off her spectacles, and cleaned them, to make certain that the drops were not upon the glasses, "'Mrs. Ramswell might have been sufficiently assured by hearing the rain, but that she is rather deaf, which nothing will induce her to believe. She is a fine old lady, handsome, stately, wonderfully neat, and has such a back and such a stomacher, that if her stays should turn out when she dies to have been a broad, old-fashioned family fire-grate, nobody who knows her would have cause to be surprised. "'Weather affects Mrs. Ramswell little.' The house is there in all weathers, and the house, as she expresses it, is what she looks at. She sits in her room, in a side passage on the ground floor, with an arched window commanding a smooth quadrangle, adorned at regular intervals with smooth round trees and smooth round blocks of stone, as if the trees were going to play at bowls with the stones. And the whole house reposes on her mind. She can open it on occasion, and be busy and fluttered, but it is shut up now. "'and lies on the breadth of Mrs. Rouncewell's iron-bound bosom "'in a majestic sleep. "'It is the next difficult thing to an impossibility "'to imagine Chesney Wold without Mrs. Rouncewell. "'But she has only been there fifty years. "'Ask her how long this rainy day, and she shall answer, fifty year, three months, and a fortnight, "'by the blessing of heaven, if I live till Tuesday.' Mr. Rouncewell died some time before the decease of the pretty fashion of pigtails, and modestly hid his own, if he took it with him, in a corner of the churchyard, in the park, near the mouldy porch. He was born in the market-town, and so was his young widow. Her progress in the family began in the time of the last Sir Leicester, and originated in the still room. The present representative of the Dedlocks is an excellent master— he supposes all his dependents to be utterly bereft of individual characters, intentions, or opinions, and is persuaded that he was born to supersede the necessity of their having any. If he were to make a discovery to the contrary, he would be simply stunned, would never recover himself most likely, except to gasp and die. But he is an excellent master still, holding it a part of his state to be so. He has a great liking for Mrs. Rouncewell, he says she is a most respectable, creditable woman. He always shakes hands with her when he comes down to Chesney Wold, and when he goes away. And if he were very ill, or if he were knocked down by accident, or run over, or placed in any situation expressive of a deadlock at a disadvantage, he would say, if he could speak, leave me and send Mrs. Rouncewell here, feeling his dignity at such a pass, safer with her than with anybody else. Mrs. Rouncewell has known trouble— she has had two sons, of whom the younger ran wild, and went for a soldier, and never came back. Even to this hour Mrs. Rouncewell's calm hands lose their composure when she speaks of him, and, unfolding themselves from her stomacher, hover about her in an agitated manner, as she says, what a likely lad, what a fine lad, what a gay, good-humoured, clever lad he was.' her second son would have been provided for at Chesney wold and would have been made steward in due season but he took when he was a schoolboy to constructing steam-engines out of saucepans and setting birds to draw their own water with the least possible amount of labour so assisting them with artful contrivance of hydraulic pressure that a thirsty canary had only in a literal sense to put his shoulder to the wheel and the job was done this propensity gave mrs rouncewell great uneasiness she felt it with a mother's anguish to be a move in the what tyler direction while knowing that sir leicester had that general impression of an aptitude for any art to which smoke and a tall chimney might be considered essential but the doomed young rebel otherwise a mild youth and very persevering showing no sign of grace as he got older but on the contrary constructing a model of a power-loom she was fain with many tears to mention his backslidings to the baronet Mrs Ronswell, said Sir Leicester, I can never consent to argue, as you know, with any one on any subject. You had better get rid of your boy you had better get him into some works. The Iron Country farther north is, I suppose, the congenial direction for a boy with these tendencies. Farther north he went, and farther north he grew up and if Sir Lester Dedlock ever saw him when he came to Chesney Wold to visit his mother, or ever thought of him afterwards, it is certain that he only regarded him as one of a body of some odd thousand conspirators, swarthy and grim, who were in the habit of turning out by torchlight two or three nights in the week for unlawful purposes. Nevertheless, Mrs. Rouncewell's son has, in the course of nature and art, grown up, and established himself, and married, and called unto him Mrs. Rouncewell's grandson, who, being out of his apprenticeship, and home from a journey in far countries, whither he was sent to enlarge his knowledge, and complete his preparations for the venture of this life, stands leaning against the chimney-piece this very day, in Mrs. Rouncewell's room at Chesney Wold. And again and again, I am "'Glad to see you what?' "'And once again, I am glad to see you what?' "'Says Mrs. Rouncewell. "'You are a fine young fellow. "'You are like your poor Uncle George. "'Ah!' "'Mrs. Rouncewell's hands, unquiet as usual, on this reference. "'They say I'm like my father, Grandmother.' "'Like him also, my dear,' "'but most like your poor Uncle George "'and your dear father.' "'Mrs. Rouncewell folds her hands again. "'He is well. "'Thriving, Grandmother, in every way. "'I am thankful.' "'Mrs. Rouncewell is fond of her son, "'but has a plaintive feeling towards him, "'much as if he were a very honourable soldier "'who had gone over to the enemy. "'He is quite happy,' says she, quite. "'I am thankful. So he has brought you up to follow in his ways, and has sent you into foreign countries and the like? Well, he knows best. There may be a world beyond Chesney Wold that I don't understand, though I am not young either, and I have seen a quantity of good company too.' "'Grandmother,' says the young man, changing the subject, "'what a very pretty girl, that was, I found with you just now. You called her Rosa? Yes, child. She is daughter of a widow in the village. Maids are so hard to teach nowadays, that I have put her about me young. She is an apt scholar, and will do well. She shows the house already. Very pretty. She lives with me at my table here. I hope I have not driven her away. "'She supposes we have family affairs to speak about, I dare say. "'She is very modest. "'It is a fine quality in a young woman, and scarcer,' says Mrs. Rouncewell, "'expanding her stomacher to its utmost limits, than it formerly was. "'The young man inclines his head in acknowledgment of the precepts of experience. "'Mrs. Rouncewell listens. "'Wheels,' says she, They have long been audible to the younger ears of her companion. "'What wheels! and such a day as this, for gracious sake!' After a short interval, a tap at the door. "'Come in!' A dark-eyed, dark-haired, shy, village-beauty comes in, so fresh in her rosy and yet delicate bloom that the drops of rain which have beaten on her hair look like the dew upon a flower-fresh gathered." "'What company is this, Rosa?' says Mrs. Ranswell. "'It's two young men in a gig, ma'am, who want to see the house. "'Yes, and if you please, I told them so.' "'In quick reply to a gesture of dissent from the housekeeper,' "'I went to the hall-door and told them it was the wrong day and the wrong hour, "'but the young man who was driving took off his hat in the wet "'and begged me to bring this card to you.' "'Read it, my dear What? says the housekeeper. "'Rosa is so shy, if she gives it to him, "'that they drop it between them, "'and almost knock their foreheads together as they pick it up. "'Rosa is shyer than before. "'Mr. Guppy,' "'is all the information the card yields.' "'Gappy?' repeats Mrs. Rouncewell. "'Mr. Gappy? Oh, nonsense! I never heard of him!' "'If you please, he told me that,' says Rosa. "'but he said that he and the other young gentleman "'came from London only last night by the mail "'on business at the magistrate's meeting ten miles off this morning, "'and that as their business was soon over "'and they had heard a great deal said of Chesney Wold "'and really didn't know what to do with themselves, "'they had come through the wet to see it. "'They are lawyers. "'He says he is not in Mr. Tulkinghorn's office, "'but he is sure he may make use of Mr. Tulkinghorn's name if necessary.' Finding, now she leaves off, that she has been making quite a long speech, Rosa is shyer than ever. Now, Mr. Tulkinghorn is, in a manner, part and parcel of the place, and, besides, is supposed to have made Mrs. Roundswell's will. The old lady relaxes, consents to the admission of the visitors as a favour, and dismisses Rosa. The grandson, however, being smitten by a sudden wish to see the house himself, proposes to join the party. The grandmother, who is pleased that he should have that interest, accompanies him, though to do him justice he is exceedingly unwilling to trouble her. "'Much obliged to you, ma'am,' says Mr. Guppy, divesting himself of his wet dreadnought in the hall. "'Us London lawyers don't often get an out, and when we do, we like to make the most of it, you know.' The old housekeeper, with a gracious severity of deportment, waves her hand towards the great staircase. Mr. Guppy and his friend follow Rosa, Mrs. Rouncewell and her grandson follow them. A young gardener goes before to open the shutters. As is usually the case with people who go over houses, Mr. Guppy and his friend are dead beat before they have well begun. They straggle about in wrong places, look at wrong things, don't care for the right things gape when more rooms are opened, exhibit profound depression of spirits, and are clearly knocked up. In each successive chamber that they enter, Mrs. Rouncewell, who is as upright as the house itself, rests apart in a window-seat, or other such nook, and listens with stately approval to Rosa's exposition. Her grandson is so attentive to it that Rosa is shyer than ever, and prettier. Thus they pass on from room to room— "'raising the pictured deadlocks for a few brief minutes, "'as the young gardener admits the light, "'and reconsigning them to their graves as he shuts it out again. "'It appears to the afflicted Mr. Guppy, and his inconsolable friend, "'that there is no end to the deadlocks, "'whose family greatness seems to consist in their never having done anything "'to distinguish themselves for seven hundred years. "'Even the long drawing-room of Chesney Wold cannot revive Mr. Guppy's spirits.' He is so low that he droops on the threshold, and has hardly strength of mind to enter. But a portrait over the chimney-piece, painted by the fashionable artist of the day, acts upon him like a charm. He recovers in a moment. He stares at it with uncommon interest. He seems to be fixed and fascinated by it. "'Dear me,' says Mr. Guppy, "'who's that?' "'The picture over the fireplace.' "'says Rosa, is the portrait "'of the present Lady Dedlock? "'It is considered a perfect "'likeness, and the best work of the "'master.' "'Blessed,' says Mr. Guppy, "'staring in a kind of dismay at his friend, "'if I can ever "'have seen her. Yet I know her. "'Has the picture been engraved, "'Miss?' "'The picture has never been engraved. "'Sir so Lester has always "'refused permission.' "'Well,' "'says Mr. Guppy in a low voice. "'I'll be short if it ain't very curious "'how well I know that picture. "'So that's Lady Dedlock, is it?' "'The picture on the right is the present Sir Leicester Dedlock. "'The picture on the left is his father, the late Sir Leicester.' "'Mr. Guppy has no eyes for either of these magnets. "'It's unaccountable to me,' he says, "'still staring at the portrait.' how well i know that picture i'm dashed adds mr guppy looking round if i don't think i must have had a dream of that picture you know as no one present takes any especial interest in mr guppy's dreams the probability is not pursued but he still remains so absorbed by the portrait that he stands immovable before it until the young gardener has closed the shutters when he comes out of the room in a dazed state that is an odd, though a sufficient substitute for interest, and follows into the succeeding rooms with a confused stare, as if he were looking everywhere for Lady Deadlock again. He sees no more of her. He sees her rooms, which are the last shown, as being very elegant, and he looks out of the windows from which she looked out, not long ago, upon the weather that brought her to death. All things have an end. "'even houses that people take infinite pains to see "'and are tired of before they begin to see them. "'He has come to the end of the sight, "'and the fresh village beauty to the end of her description, "'which is always this. "'The terrace below is much admired. "'It is called, from an old story in the family, "'The Ghost's Walk.' "'No,' says Mr. Guppy, greedily curious. "'What's the story, miss? "'Is it anything about a picture?' "'Pray, tell us the story,' says Watt, in a half-whisper. "'I don't know it, sir,' Rosa is shyer than ever. "'It is not related to visitors. "'It is almost forgotten,' says the housekeeper, advancing. "'It has never been more than a family anecdote. "'You'll excuse my asking again, if it has anything to do with the picture, ma'am,' observed Mr. Guppy. "'because I do assure you that the more I think of that picture, the better I know it, "'without knowing how I know it.' "'The story has nothing to do with the picture. "'A housekeeper can guarantee that. "'Mr. Guppy is obliged to her for the information, and is, moreover, generally obliged. "'He retires with his friend, guided down another staircase by the young gardener, "'and presently is heard to drive away. "'It is now dusk. Mrs. Rouncewell can trust to the discretion of her two young hearers, and may tell them how the Terrace came to have that ghostly name. She seats herself in a large chair by the fast darkening window, and tells them, "'In the wicked days, my dears, of King Charles I—I I mean, of course, in the wicked days of the rebels who league themselves against that excellent King, Sir Morbury Dedlock." "'was the owner of Chesney Wold. "'Whether there was any account of a ghost "'in the family before those days, I can't say. "'I should think it very likely, indeed. "'Mrs. Rouncewell holds this opinion "'because she considers that a family of such antiquity "'and importance has a right to a ghost. "'She regards a ghost as one of the privileges "'of the upper classes, "'a genteel distinction to which the common people "'have no claim. "'Sir Marbury Deadlock,' "'says Mrs. Rouncewell, was, I have no occasion to say, on the side of the blessed martyr. "'But it is supposed that his lady, who had none of the family blood in her veins, favoured the bad cause. "'It is said that she had relations among King Charles's enemies, "'that she was in correspondence with them, and that she gave them information.' when any of the country gentlemen who followed his majesty's cause met here it is said that my lady was always nearer to the door of their council-room than they supposed do you hear a sound like a footstep passing along the terrace what rosa draws nearer to the housekeeper i hear the rain-drip on the stones replies the young man and i hear a curious echo i suppose an echo which is very like a halting step the housekeeper gravely nods and continues partly on account of this division between them and partly on other accounts sir Morbury and his lady led a troubled life she was a lady of a haughty temper they were not well suited to each other in age or character and they had no children to moderate between them after a favourite brother a young gentleman was killed in the civil wars by sir Morbury's near kinsman Her feeling was so violent, that she hated the race into which she had married. When the deadlocks were about to ride out from Chesney Wold in the king's cause, she is supposed to have more than once stolen down into the stables in the dead of night, and lamed their horses. And the story is that once at such an hour, her husband saw her gliding down the stairs, and followed her into the stall where his own favourite horse stood, "'There he seized her by the wrist, and in a struggle, or in a fall, or through the horse being frightened and lashing out, she was lamed in the hip, and from that hour began to pine away.' "'The housekeeper has dropped her voice to a little more than a whisper. "'She had been a lady of a handsome figure and a noble carriage.' she never complained of the change she never spoke to any one of being crippled or of being in pain but day by day she tried to walk upon the terrace and with the help of the stone balustrade went up and down up and down up and down in sun and shadow with greater difficulty every day at last one afternoon, her husband, to whom she had never on any persuasion opened her lips since that night, standing at the great south window, saw her drop upon the pavement. He hastened down to raise her, but she repulsed him as he bent over her, and looking at him fixedly and coldly said, "'I will die here where I have walked, and I will walk here though I am in my grave.' "'I will walk here until the pride of this house is humbled, "'and when calamity or when disgrace is coming to it, "'let the deadlocks listen for my step.' "'What looks at Rosa? "'Rosa, in the deepening gloom, looks down upon the ground, "'half frightened and half shy. "'There and then she died. "'And from those days,' says Mrs. Rouncewell, The name has come down, the ghost's walk. If the tread is an echo, it is an echo that is only heard after dark, and is often unheard for a long while together. But it comes back from time to time, and so sure as there is sickness or death in the family, it will be heard then. And disgrace, grandmother? Says what? Disgrace. "'Never comes to Chesney Wold,' returns the housekeeper. Her grandson apologises with, "'True, true.' "'That is the story. Whatever the sound is, it is a worrying sound,' says Mrs. Ranswell, getting up from her chair. "'And what is to be noticed in it is that it must be heard. My lady, who is afraid of nothing, admits that when it is there, IT MUST BE HEARD. YOU CANNOT SHUT IT OUT. WHAT? THERE IS A TALL FRENCH CLOCK BEHIND YOU, PLACED THERE A PURPOSE, AS A LOUD BEAT WHEN IT IS IN MOTION, AND CAN PLAY MUSIC. YOU UNDERSTAND HOW THOSE THINGS ARE MANAGED? Uh, PRETTY WELL, GRANDMOTHER, I THINK. SET IT A GOING? WHAT SETS IT A GOING? MUSIC AND ALL. NOW, COME HITHER, SAYS THE HOUSEKEEPER, Hither, child, towards my lady's pillow, I'm not sure that it is dark enough yet. But listen, can you hear the sound upon the terrace, through the music, and the beat, and everything? I certainly can. So my lady says. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 8, covering a multitude of sins. It was interesting, when I dressed before daylight, to peep out of window where my candles were reflected in the black panes like two beacons, and finding all beyond, still enshrouded in the indistinctness of last night, to watch how it turned out when the day came on. As the prospect gradually revealed itself, and disclosed the scene over which the wind had wandered in the dark, like my memory over my life, I had a pleasure in discovering the unknown objects that had been around me in my sleep. At first they were faintly discernible in the mist— and above them the later stars still glimmered that pale interval over the picture began to enlarge and fill up so fast that at every new peep i could have found enough to look at for an hour imperceptibly my candles became the only incongruous part of the morning The dark places in my room all melted away, and the day shone bright upon a cheerful landscape, prominent in which the old abbey church, with its massive tower, threw a softer train of shadow on the view than seemed compatible with its rugged character. But so from rough outsides, I hope I have learnt, serene and gentle influences often proceed. Every part of the house was in such order, "'and every one was so attentive to me "'that I had no trouble with my two bunches of keys, "'though what with trying to remember the contents "'of each little storeroom drawer and cupboard, "'and what with making notes on a slate about jams, "'and pickles, and and preserves, and bottles, and glass, and china, "'and a great many other things, "'and what with being generally a methodical, "'old maidish sort of foolish little person, "'I was so busy that I could not believe it was breakfast-time "'when I heard the bell ring.' away i ran however and made tea as i had already been installed into the responsibility of the teapot and then as they were all rather late and nobody was down yet i thought i would take a peep at the garden and get some knowledge of that too i found it quite a delightful place in front the pretty avenue and drive by which we had approached and where by the by we had cut up the gravel so terribly with our wheels that i asked the gardener to roll it at the back the flower-garden with my darling at her window up there throwing it open to smile out at me as if she would have kissed me from that distance beyond the flower-garden was a kitchen-garden and then a paddock and then a snug little rickyard, and then a dear little farm-yard as to the house itself with its three peaks in the roof its various-shaped windows some so large some so small and all so pretty its trellis work against the south front for roses and honeysuckle and its homely comfortable welcoming look it was as ada said when she came out to meet me with her arm through that of its master worthy of her cousin john a bold thing to say though he only pinched her dear cheek for it mr skimpole was as agreeable at breakfast as he had been overnight there was honey on the table and it led him into a discourse about bees he had no objection to honey he said and i should think he had not for he seemed to like it but he protested against the overweening assumptions of bees he didn't at all see why the busy bee should be proposed as a model to him he supposed the bee liked to make honey or he wouldn't do it nobody asked him "'it was not necessary for the bee to make such a merit of his tastes. "'If every confectioner went buzzing about the world, "'banging against everything that came in his way, "'and egotistically calling upon everybody to take notice "'that he was going to his work, and must not be interrupted, "'the world would be quite an unsupportable place. "'Then, after all, it was a ridiculous position "'to be smoked out of your fortune with brimstone "'as soon as you would made it.' "'You would have a very mean opinion of a Manchester man "'if he spun cotton for no other purpose. "'He must say he thought a drone, "'the embodiment of a pleasanter and wiser idea. "'The drone said unaffectedly, "'You will excuse me, I really cannot attend to the shop. "'I find myself in a world in which there is so much to see, "'and so short a time to see it in, "'that I must take the liberty of looking about me, "'and begging to be provided for by somebody "'who doesn't want to look about him.' This appeared to Mr. Skimpole to be the drone philosophy, and he thought it a very good philosophy, always supposing the drone to be willing to be on good terms with the bee, which, so far as he knew, the easy fellow always was, if the consequential creature would only let him, and not be so conceited about his honey. He pursued this fancy with the lightest foot over a variety of ground, and made us all merry, though again he seemed to have as serious a meaning in what he said as he was capable of having. I left them still listening to him when I withdrew to attend to my new duties they had occupied me for some time and I was passing through the passages on my return with my basket of keys on my arm when Mr. Jarndyce called me into a small room next his bedchamber which I found to be in part a little library of books and papers and in part quite a little museum of his boots and shoes and hat-boxes sit down my dear said Mr. Jarndyce "'This, you must know, is the growlery. When I am out of humour, I come and growl here.' "'You must be here very seldom, sir,' said I. "'Oh, you don't know me,' he returned. "'When I am deceived or disappointed in the wind and its easterly, I take refuge here. The growlery is the best-used room in the house.' "'You are not aware of half my humours yet. "'My dear, how you are trembling!' "'I could not help it. "'I tried very hard. "'But being alone with that benevolent presence, "'and meeting his kind eyes, "'and feeling so happy and so honoured there, "'and my heart so full, I kissed his hand. "'I don't know what I said, or even that I spoke. "'He was disconcerted and walked to the window.' I almost believed, with an intention of jumping out, until he turned, and I was reassured by seeing in his eyes what he had gone there to hide. He gently patted me on the head, and I sat down. "'There, there,' he said. "'That's over. Pooh, Don't be foolish.' "'It shall not happen again, sir,' I returned. "'But at first it is difficult—' "'Nonsense,' he said. "'It's easy, easy. Why not? I hear of a good little orphan girl without a protector, and I take it into my head to be that protector. She grows up, and more than justifies my good opinion, and I remain her guardian and her friend. What is there in all this? So, so. Now, we have cleared off old scores, and I have before me thy pleasant, trusting, trusty face again.' "'I said to myself, "Esther, my dear, you surprise me. "'This really is not what I expected of you.' "'And it had such a good effect, that I folded my hands upon my basket, and quite recovered myself. "'Mr. Jarndyce, expressing his approval in his face, began to talk to me as confidentially "'as if I had been in the habit of conversing with him every morning, for I don't know how long. "'I almost felt as if I had.' "'Of course, Esther,' he said. "'You don't understand this chancery business?' "'And, of course,' I shook my head. "'I don't know who does,' he returned. "'The lawyers have twisted it into such a state of bedevilment "'that the original merits of the case have long disappeared from the face of the earth. "'It's about a will, and the Trust's under a will. "'Or it was once.' "'it's about nothing but costs now. "'We are always appearing and disappearing "'and swearing and interrogating "'and filing and cross-filing "'and arguing and sealing "'and motioning and referring and reporting "'and revolving about the Lord Chancellor "'and all his satellites "'and equitably waltzing ourselves off "'to dusty death about costs. "'That's the great question.' All the rest, by some extraordinary means, has melted away. "'But it was, sir,' said I, to bring him back, for he began to rub his head, "'about a will.' "'Why, yes, it was about a will, and it was about anything,' he returned. "'A certain John Dice, in an evil hour, made a great fortune, and made a great will.' In the question how the trusts under that will are to be administered, the fortune left by the will is squandered away. The legatees under the will are reduced to such a miserable condition, that they would be sufficiently punished if they had committed an enormous crime in having money left them, and the will itself is made a dead letter. All through the deplorable cause, everything that everybody in it, except one man, knows already— is referred to that only one man who don't know it to find out all through the deplorable cause everybody must have copies over and over again of everything that has accumulated about it in the way of cartloads of papers or must pay for them without having them which is the usual course for nobody wants them and must go down the middle and up again through such an infernal country dance of costs and fees and nonsense and corruption as was never dreamed of in the wildest visions of a witch's sabbath equity sends questions to law law sends questions back to equity law finds it can't do this equity finds it can't do that neither can so much as say it can't do anything without this solicitor instructing and this counsel appearing for a and that solicitor instructing and that counsel appearing for b and so on through the whole alphabet like the history of the apple pie and thus through years and years and lives and lives everything goes on constantly beginning over and over again and nothing ever ends and we can't get out of the suit on any terms for we are made parties to it and must be parties to it whether we like it or not but it won't do to think of it when my great-uncle poor tom jarndyce began to think of it It was the beginning of the end. "'The Mr. Jarndyce, sir, whose story I have heard?' He nodded gravely. "'I was his heir, and this was his house, Esther. When I came here, it was bleak indeed. He had left the signs of his misery upon it. "'How changed it must be now,' I said. "'It had been called before his time, the Peaks,' He gave it its present name, and lived here, shut up day and night, poring over the wicked heaps of papers in the suit, and hoping against hope to disentangle it from its mystification, and bring it to a close. In the meantime the place became dilapidated. The wind whistled through the cracked walls, the rain fell through the broken roof, the weeds choked the passage to the rotting door. When I brought what remained of him home here— THE BRAINS SEEMED TO ME TO HAVE BEEN BLOWN OUT OF THE HOUSE, TOO. IT WAS SO SHATTERED AND RUINED. HE WALKED A LITTLE TO AND FRO AFTER SAYING THIS TO HIMSELF WITH A SHUDDER, AND THEN LOOKED AT ME, AND BRIGHTENED, AND CAME AND SAT DOWN AGAIN, WITH HIS HANDS IN HIS POCKETS. I TOLD YOU THIS WAS THE GROWLERY, MY DEAR. WHERE WAS I? I REMINDED HIM AT THE HOPEFUL CHANGE HE HAD MADE IN BLEAK HOUSE bleak house true there is in that city of london there some property of ours which is much at this day what bleak house was then i say property of ours meaning of the suits but i ought to call it the property of costs for costs is the only power on earth that will ever get anything out of it now or will ever know it for anything but an eyesore and a heart sore. It is a street of perishing blind houses, with their eyes stoned out, without a pane of glass, without so much as a window-frame, with the bare blank shutters trembling from their hinges and falling asunder, the iron rails peeling away in flakes of rust, the chimneys sinking in, the stone steps to every door, and every door might be death's door, turning stagnant green, the very crutches on which the ruins are propped decaying. Although Bleak House was not in Chancery, its master was, and it was stamped with the same seal. These are the great seal's impressions, my dear, all over England. The children know them.' "'How changed it is!' I said again. "'Why, so it is,' he answered, much more cheerfully. "'And it is wisdom in you to keep me to the bright side of the picture.' THE IDEA OF MY WISDOM. THESE ARE THINGS I NEVER TALK ABOUT OR EVEN THINK ABOUT, EXCEPTING IN THE GROWLERY HERE. IF YOU CONSIDER IT RIGHT TO MENTION THEM TO RICK AND ADA. LOOKING SERIOUSLY AT ME? YOU CAN. I LEAVE IT TO YOUR DISCRETION, Esther. I HOPE, SIR, SAID I. I THINK YOU HAD BETTER CALL ME GUARDIAN, MY DEAR. I FELT THAT I WAS CHOKING AGAIN. "'I taxed myself with it. Esther, now you know you are.' "'When he feigned to say this slightly, "'as if it were a whim instead of a thoughtful tenderness, "'but I gave the housekeeping keys "'the least shake in the world as a reminder to myself, "'and folding my hands in a still more determined manner "'on the basket, looked at him quietly. "'I hope, guardian,' said I, "'that you may not trust too much to my discretion.' I hope you may not mistake me. I am afraid it will be a disappointment to you to know that I am not clever, but it really is the truth, and you would soon find it out, if I had not the honesty to confess it. He did not seem at all disappointed, quite the contrary. He told me, with a smile all over his face, that he knew me very well indeed, and that I was quite clever enough for him. I hope I may turn out so, said I but i am much afraid of it guardian you are clever enough to be the good little woman of our lives here my dear he returned playfully the little old woman of the child's-i don't mean skimpole's rhyme little old woman and wither so high to sweep the cobwebs out of the sky you will sweep them so neatly out of our sky "'in the course of your housekeeping, Esther, "'that one of these days we shall have to abandon the growlery "'and nail up the door.' "'This was the beginning of my being called Old Woman, "'and Little Old Woman, and Cobweb, and Mrs. Shipton, "'and Mother Hubbard, and Dame Durden, "'and so many names of that sort "'that my own name soon became quite lost among them.' "'However,' said Mr. Jarndyce to return to our gossip. Here's Rick, a fine young fellow, full of promise. What's to be done with him?" "'Oh, my goodness! The idea of asking my advice on such a point!' "'Here he is, Esther,' said Mr. Jarndyce, comfortably putting his hands into his pockets, and stretching out his legs. "'He must have a profession. He must make some choice for himself. "'There will be a world more wigglomeration about it, I suppose, but it must be done.' "'More what, guardian?' said I. "'More wigglomeration,' said he. "'It's the only name I know for the thing. He is a ward in chancery, my dear. Kenge and Carboy will have something to say about it. Master somebody.' a sort of ridiculous sexton digging graves for the merits of causes in a back room at the end of quality court. Chancery Lane will have something to say about it. Council will have something to say about it. The Chancellor will have something to say about it. The Satellites will have something to say about it. They will all have to be handsomely feed, all round, about it. The whole thing will be vastly ceremonious— wordy unsatisfactory and expensive and i call it in general wigglomeration how mankind ever came to be afflicted with wigglomeration or for whose sins these young people ever fell into a pit of it i don't know so it is he began to rub his head again and to hint that he felt the wind but it was a delightful instance of his kindness towards me that whether he rubbed his head or walked about or did both, his face was sure to recover its benignant expression as it looked at mine, and he was sure to turn comfortable again, and put his hands in his pockets, and stretch out his legs. Perhaps it would be best, first of all, said I, to ask Mr. Richard what he inclines to himself. Exactly so, he returned. That's what I mean. You know, "'Just accustom yourself to talk it over, with your tact, and in your quiet way, with him and Ada, and see what you all make of it. "'We are sure to come at the heart of the matter by your means, little woman.' "'I was really frightened at the thought of the importance I was attaining, and the number of things that were being confided to me. "'I had not meant this at all. "'I had meant that he should speak to Richard.' But, of course, I said nothing in reply, except that I would do my best, though I feared, I really felt it necessary to repeat this, that he thought me much more sagacious than I was, at which my guardian only laughed the pleasantest laugh I ever heard. "'Come,' he said, rising and pushing back his chair. "'I think we may have done with the growlery for one day. Only a concluding word, Esther, my dear.' "'Do you wish to ask me anything?' "'He looked so attentively at me, that I looked attentively at him, and felt sure I understood him. "'About myself, sir?' said I. "'Yes.' "'Guardian?' said I, venturing to put my hand, which was suddenly colder than I could have wished, in his. "'Nothing. I am quite sure that if there were anything I ought to know.' "'or had any need to know, "'I should not have to ask you to tell it to me. "'If my whole reliance and confidence were not placed in you, "'I must have a hard heart indeed. "'I have nothing to ask you, nothing in the world.' "'He drew my hand through his arm, "'and we went away to look for Ada. "'From that hour I felt quite easy with him, "'quite unreserved, quite content to know no more, quite happy.' we lived at first rather a busy life at bleak house for we had to become acquainted with many residents in and out of the neighbourhood who knew mr jarndyce it seemed to adrian me that everybody knew him who wanted to do anything with anybody else's money It amazed us, when we began to sort his letters, and to answer some of them for him in the growlery of a morning, to find how the great object of the lives of nearly all his correspondents appeared to be to form themselves into committees for getting in and laying out money. The ladies were as desperate as the gentlemen. Indeed, I think they were even more so. They threw themselves into committees in the most impassioned manner— and collected subscriptions with a vehemence quite extraordinary. It appeared to us that some of them must pass their whole lives in dealing out subscription cards to the whole post-office directory—shilling cards, half-crown cards, half-sovereign cards, penny cards. They wanted everything. They wanted wearing apparel. They wanted linen rags. They wanted money. They wanted coals. They wanted soup. They wanted interest. They wanted autographs, they wanted flannel, they wanted whatever Mr. Jarndyce had, or had not. Their objects were as various as their demands. They were going to raise new buildings, they were going to pay off debts on old buildings, they were going to establish, in a picturesque building, engraving of proposed west elevation attached, the sisterhood of medieval Marys, they were going to give a testimonial to Mrs. Jellybee, They were going to have their secretary's portrait painted, and presented to his mother-in-law, whose deep devotion to him was well known. They were going to get up everything, I really believe, from five hundred thousand tracts, to an annuity, and from a marble monument, to a silver teapot. They took a multitude of titles. They were the Women of England, the Daughters of Britain, the Sisters of all the Cardinal Virtues, separately, the Females of America, the Ladies of a Hundred Denominations. They appeared to be always excited about canvassing and electing. They seemed, to our poor wits, and according to their own accounts, to be constantly polling people by tens of thousands, yet never bringing their candidates in for anything. It made our heads ache to think, on the whole, what feverish lives they must lead. Among the ladies who were most distinguished for this rapacious benevolence, if I may use the expression, was a Mrs. Pardiggle who seemed, as I judge from the number of her letters to Mr. Jarndyce, to be almost as powerful a correspondent as Mrs. Jellyby herself. We observed that the wind always changed when Mrs. Pardiggle became the subject of conversation, and that it invariably interrupted Mr. Jarndyce, and prevented his going any farther. When he had remarked that there were two classes of charitable people, one the people who did a little and made a great deal of noise, the other the people who did a great deal and made no noise at all, "'We were therefore curious to see Mrs. Pardiggle, "'suspecting her to be a type of the former class, "'and were glad when she called one day "'with her five young sons. "'She was a formidable style of lady with spectacles, "'a prominent nose, and a loud voice, "'who had the effect of wanting a great deal of room. "'And she really did, "'for she knocked down little chairs with her skirts "'that were quite a great way off. "'As only Ada and I were at home, "'we received her timidly, "'for she seemed to come in like cold weather.' "'to make the little pardiggles blue as they followed. "'These young ladies,' said mrs pardigle with great volubility after the first salutations are my five boys you may have seen their names in a printed subscription-list perhaps more than one in the position of our esteemed friend mr egbert my eldest twelve is the boy who sent out his pocket-money to the amount of five and threepence to the tokahoopoo indians "'Oswald, my second, ten and a half, is the child who contributed two and ninepence "'to the great National Smithers' testimonial. "'Francis, my third, nine, one and sixpence halfpenny. "'Felix, my fourth, seven, eightpence, to the superannuated widows. "'Alfred, my youngest, five, has voluntarily enrolled himself in the infant bonds of joy, "'and has pledged never through life to use tobacco in any form.' "'We had never seen such dissatisfied children. "'It was not merely that they were weazened and shriveled, "'though they were certainly that too, "'but they looked absolutely ferocious with discontent. "'At the mention of the Togahupo Indians, "'I could really have supposed Egbert "'to be one of the most baleful members of that tribe. "'He gave me such a savage frown. "'The face of each child, "'as the amount of his contribution was mentioned, "'darkened in a peculiarly vindictive manner.' but his was by far the worst i must accept however the little recruit into the infant bonds of joy who was stolidly and evenly miserable you have been visiting i understand said mrs pardiggle at mrs Jellyby's, we said yes we had passed one night there mrs Jellyby." pursued the lady, always speaking in the same demonstrative loud, hard tone, so that her voice impressed my fancy as if it had a sort of spectacles on, too. And I may take the opportunity of remarking, that her spectacles were made the less engaging by her eyes, being what Ada called choking eyes, meaning very prominent. Mrs. Jellybee is a benefactor to society, and deserves a helping hand. My boys have contributed to the African project.' Egbert, one and six, being the entire allowance of nine weeks, Oswald, one and a penny halfpenny, being the same, the rest according to their little means. Nevertheless, I do not go with Mrs. Jellyby in all things. I do not go with Mrs. Jellyby in her treatment of her young family. It has been noticed, it has been observed, that her young family are excluded from participation in the objects to which she is devoted. She may be right, she may be wrong, but— "'Right or wrong, this is not my course with my young family. "'I take them everywhere.' "'I was afterwards convinced, and so was Ada, "'that from the ill-conditioned eldest child "'these words extorted a sharp yell. "'He turned it off into a yawn, but it began as a yell. "'They attend matins with me, very prettily done, "'at half past six o'clock in the morning, all the year round, "'including, of course, the depth of winter.' said mrs pardiggle rapidly and they are with me during the revolving duties of the day "'I am a school lady, I am a visiting lady, I am a reading lady, I am a distributing lady. "'I am on the local linen-box committee, and many general committees, "'and my canvassing alone is very extensive, perhaps no one's more so. "'But they are my companions everywhere, and by these means they acquire that knowledge of the poor, "'and that capacity of doing charitable business in general, "'in short, that taste for the sort of thing which will render them in after-life a service to their neighbours, "'and a satisfaction to themselves. "'My young family are not frivolous. They expend the entire amount of their allowance in subscriptions under my direction, and they have attended as many public meetings, and listened to as many lectures, orations, and discussions, as generally fall to the lot of few grown people. Alfred Five, who, as I mentioned, has of his own election joined the infant bonds of joy, was one of the very few children who manifested consciousness on that occasion, after a fervid address of two hours, from the chairman of the evening. Alfred glowered at us, as if he never could, or would, forgive the injury of that night— you may have observed miss summerson said mrs pardiggle in some of the lists to which i have referred in the possession of our esteemed friend mr jarndyce the names of my young family are concluded with the name of o a pardiggle f r s one pound that is their father we usually observe the same routine I put down my mite first, then my young family unroll their contributions, according to their ages and their little means, and then Mr. Pardigle brings up the rear. Mr. Pardigle is happy to throw in his limited donation under my direction, and thus things are made not only pleasant to ourselves, but we trust improving to others. "'Suppose Mr. Pardigle were to dine with Mr. Jellyby and suppose mr Jellyby were to relieve his mind after dinner to mr pardiggle would mr pardiggle in return make any confidential communication to mr Jellyby? i was quite confused to find myself thinking this but it came into my head you are very pleasantly situated here said mrs pardiggle we were glad to change the subject and going to the window pointed out the beauties of the prospect on which the spectacles appeared to me to rest with curious indifference you know mr gusher said our visitor we were obliged to say that we had not the pleasure of mr gusher's acquaintance the loss is yours i assure you said mrs pardiggle with her commanding deportment he is a very fervid impassioned speaker full of fire "'Stationed in a waggon on this lawn now, which, from the shape of the land, is naturally adapted to a public meeting, he would improve almost any occasion, you could mention, for hours and hours. By this time, young ladies,' said Mrs. Pardickle, moving back to her chair and overturning, as if by invisible agency, a little round table, at a considerable distance, with my work-basket on it, "'by this time you have found me out, my Say, "'This was really such a confusing question, that Ada looked at me in perfect dismay. As to the guilty nature of my own consciousness, after what I had been thinking, it must have been expressed in the colour of my cheeks.' "'Found out, I mean,' said Mrs. Pardigle, "'the prominent point in my character. I am aware that it is so prominent as to be discoverable immediately. I lay myself open to detection, I know. Well, I freely admit, I am a woman of business.' "'I love hard work. "'I enjoy hard work. "'The excitement does me good. "'I am so accustomed and inured to hard work "'that I don't know what fatigue is.' "'We murmured that it was very astonishing "'and very gratifying, or, or something to that effect. "'I don't think we knew what it was either, "'but this is what our politeness expressed. "'I do not understand what it is to be tired. "'You cannot tire me if you try,' said Mrs. Pardigle the quantity of exertion which is no exertion to me the amount of business which i regard as nothing that i go through sometimes astonishes myself i have seen my young family and mr pardiggle quite worn out with witnessing it when i may truly say i have been as fresh as a lark if that dark-visaged eldest boy could look more malicious than he had already looked This was the time when he did it. I observed that he doubled his right fist, and delivered a secret blow into the crown of his cap, which was under his left arm. "'This gives me a great advantage when I am making my rounds,' said Mrs. Pardiggle. "'If I find a person unwilling to hear what I have to say, I tell that person directly. I am incapable of fatigue, my good friend. I am never tired, and I mean to go on until I have done.' "'It answers admirably. Miss Summerson, I hope I shall have your assistance in my visiting rounds immediately, and Miss Clare's very soon.' "'At first I tried to excuse myself for the present, on the general ground of having occupations to attend to, which I must not neglect. But as this was an ineffectual protest, I then said—' more particularly that I was not sure of my qualifications, that I was inexperienced in the art of adapting my mind to minds very differently situated, and addressing them from suitable points of view, that I had not that delicate knowledge of the heart, which must be essential to such a work, that I had much to learn myself before I could teach others, and that I could not confide in my good intentions alone. For these reasons I thought it best to be as useful as I could— and to render what kind services I could to those immediately about me, and to try to let that circle of duty gradually and naturally expand itself. All this I said with anything but confidence, because Mrs. Pardigle was much older than I, and had great experience, and was so very military in her manners. "'You are wrong, Miss Summerson," said she, but perhaps you are not equal to hard work of the excitement of it, and that makes a vast difference. If you would like to see how I go through my work, I am now about with my young family to visit a brickmaker in the neighbourhood a very bad character, and shall be glad to take you with me, Miss Clare also, if she will do me the favour Ada and I interchanged looks, and as we were going out in any case, accepted the offer when we hastily returned from putting on our bonnets we found the young family languishing in a corner and mrs pardiggle sweeping about the room knocking down nearly all the light objects it contained mrs pardiggle took possession of ada and i followed with the family ada told me afterwards that mrs pardiggle talked in the same loud tone that indeed i overheard all the way to the brickmaker's about an exciting contest which she had for two or three years waged against another lady relative to the bringing in of their rival candidates for a pension somewhere there had been a quantity of printing and promising and proxying and polling and it appeared to have imparted great liveliness to all concerned except the pensioners who were not elected yet i am very fond of being confided in by children and am happy in being usually favoured in that respect but on this occasion "'gave me great uneasiness. "'As soon as we were out of doors, "'Egbert, with the manner of a little footpad, "'demanded a shilling of me, "'on the ground that his pocket-money "'was boned from him. "'On my pointing out the great impropriety "'of the word, especially in connection "'with his parent, for he added sulkily, "'By her,' "'he pinched me, and said, "'Oh, then now, "'who are you? "'You wouldn't like it, I think.' what does she make a sham for and pretend to give me money and take it away again why do you call it my allowance and never let me spend it these exasperating questions so inflamed his mind and the minds of oswald and francis that they all pinched me at once and in a dreadfully expert way screwing up such little pieces of my arms that i could hardly forbear crying out felix at the same time stamped upon my toes and the bond of joy who on account of always having the whole of his little income anticipated stood in fact pledged to abstain from cakes as well as tobacco so swelled with grief and rage when we passed a pastry-cook shop that he terrified me by becoming purple i never underwent so much both in body and mind, in the course of a walk with young people, as from these unnaturally constrained children, when they paid me the compliment of being natural. I was glad when we came to the brickmaker's house, though. It was one of a cluster of wretched hovels in a brick-field, with pig-sties close to the broken windows, and miserable little gardens before the doors, growing nothing but stagnant pools. Here and there an old tub was put to catch the droppings of rain-water from a roof, or they were banked up with mud into a little pond, like a large dirt-pie. At the doors and windows, some men and women lounged or prowled about, and took little notice of us except to laugh to one another, or to say something as we passed about gentlefolks minding their own business, and not troubling their heads and muddying their shoes with coming to look after other peoples.' Mrs. Pardiggle, leading the way with a great show of moral determination, and talking with much volubility about the untidy habits of the people, though I doubted if the best of us could have been tidy in such a place, conducted us into a cottage at the farthest corner, the ground-floor room of which we nearly filled. Besides ourselves there were in this damp, offensive room a woman with a black eye, nursing a poor little gasping baby by the fire— A man, all stained with clay and mud, and looking very dissipated, lying at full length on the ground, smoking a pipe. A powerful young man fastening a collar on a dog, and a bold girl doing some kind of washing in very dirty water. They all looked up at us as we came in, and the woman seemed to turn her face towards the fire, as if to hide her bruised eye. Nobody gave us any welcome. "'Well, my friends,' said Mrs. Pardigle, "'But her voice had not a friendly sound, I thought. "'It was much too businesslike and systematic. "'How do you do, all of you? "'I'm here again. "'I told you, you couldn't tire me, you know. "'I am fond of hard work, and am true to my word.' "'There aren't,' growled the man on the floor, "'whose head rested on his hand as he stared at us. "'Any more on you to come in, is there?' "'No, my friend.' said Mrs. Pardiggle, seating herself on one stool, and knocking down another. "'We are all here.' "'Because I thought there weren't enough of you, perhaps,' said the man, with his pipe between his lips, as he looked round upon us. The young man and the girl both laughed. Two friends of the young man, whom we had attracted to the doorway, and who stood there with their hands in their pockets, echoed the laugh noisily. "'You can't tire me, good people,' said Mrs. Pardiggle, to these latter.' "'I enjoy hard work, and the harder you make mine, the better I like it.' "'Then make it easy for her,' growled the man upon the floor. "'I wants it done and over. "'I wants an end of these liberties took with my place. "'I wants an end of being drawed like a badger. "'Now you're a-goin to pole pry and question, according to custom. "'I know what you're a-goin to be up to.' "'Well?' "'You haven't got no occasion to be up to it. "'I'll save you the trouble. "'Is my daughter a-washing?' "'Yeah, she is a-washing. "'Look at the water. Smell it. "'That's what we drinks. "'How do you like it? "'And what do you think of gin instead? And my place dirty?' "'Yes, it is dirty. "'It's naturally dirty, and it's naturally unwholesome. "'And we've had five dirty and unwholesome children, "'as is all dead infants.' And so much are better for them, and for us besides. "'Have I read the little book, what you left? "'No, I ain't read the little book, what you left. "'There ain't nobody here as knows how to read it. "'And if there was, it wouldn't be suitable to me. "'It's a book fit for a babby, and I'm not a babby. "'If you was to leave me a doll, I shouldn't nuss it. "'How have I been conducting of myself? "'Why, I've been drunk for three days, "'and I'd have been drunk four, if I'd had the money.' "'Don't I never mean for to go to church?' "'No, I don't never mean for to go to church. I shouldn't be expected there if I did. The beadle's too genteel for me. And how did my wife get that black eye? Why, I give it her. And if she says I didn't, she's a lie.' He had pulled his pipe out of his mouth to say all this, and he now turned over on his other side, and smoked again. "'Mrs. Pardiggle, who had been regarding him through her spectacles with a forcible composure, calculated, I could not help thinking, to increase his antagonism, pulled out a good book, as if it were a constable's staff, and took the whole family into custody. I, I mean into religious custody, of course, but she really did it as if she were an inexorable moral policeman, carrying them all off to a station-house.' Ada and I were very uncomfortable. We both felt intrusive and out of place, and we both thought that Mrs. Pardiggle would have got on infinitely better if she had not had such a mechanical way of taking possession of people. The children sulked and stared. The family took no notice of us whatever, except when the young man made the dog bark, which he usually did when Mrs. Pardiggle was most emphatic. We both felt painfully sensible, that between us and these people— "'there was an iron barrier which could not be removed by our new friend. "'By whom or how it could be removed, we did not know, but we knew that. "'Even what she read and said seemed to us to be ill-chosen for such auditors, "'if it had been imparted ever so modestly and with ever so much tact. "'As to the little book to which the man on the floor had referred, "'we acquired a knowledge of it afterwards, "'and Mr. Jarndyce said he doubted if Robinson Crusoe could have read it.' "'though he had had no other on his desolate island. "'We were very much relieved under these circumstances "'when Mrs. Pardigle left off. "'The man on the floor, then turning his head round again, "'said morosely, "'Well, you've done, have you? "'For to-day I have, my friend, but I am never fatigued. "'I shall come to you again in your regular order,' "'returned Mrs. Pardigle, with demonstrative cheerfulness.' "'So long as you goes now,' said he, folding his arms and shutting his eyes with an oath. "'You may do what you like.' Mrs. Pardiggle accordingly rose, and made a little vortex in the confined room, from which the pipe itself very narrowly escaped. Taking one of her young family in each hand, and telling the others to follow closely, and expressing her hope that the brickmaker and all his house would be improved when she saw them next, she then proceeded to another cottage." I hope it is not unkind in me to say that she certainly did make, in this as in everything else, a show that was not conciliatory of doing charity by wholesale, and of dealing in it to a large extent. She supposed that we were following her, but as soon as the space was left clear, we approached the woman sitting by the fire, to ask if the baby were ill. She only looked at it as it lay on her lap. We had observed before that when she looked at it, She covered her discoloured eye with her hand, as though she wished to separate any association with noise and violence and ill-treatment from the poor little child. Ada, whose gentle heart was moved by its appearance, bent down to touch its little face. As she did so, I saw what happened and drew her back. The child died. (sighs) "'Oh, Esther!' cried Ada, sinking on her knees beside it. "'Look here! Oh, Esther, my love! The little thing! The suffering, quiet, pretty little thing! I'm so sorry for it! I'm so sorry for the mother! I never saw a sight so pitiful as this before! Oh, baby! Baby!' "'Such compassion! Such gentleness!' as that with which she bent down weeping, and put her hand upon the mother's, might have softened any mother's heart that ever beat. The woman at first gazed at her in astonishment, and then burst into tears. Presently I took the light burden from her lap, did what I could to make the baby's rest the prettier and gentler, laid it on a shelf, and covered it with my own handkerchief. We tried to comfort the mother— and we whispered to her what our Saviour said of children. She answered nothing, but sat weeping, weeping very much. When I turned, I found that the young man had taken out the dog, and was standing at the door looking in upon us with dry eyes, but quiet. The girl was quiet too, and sat in a corner looking on the ground. The man had risen. He still smoked his pipe with an air of defiance, but he was silent, "'An ugly woman, very poorly clothed, "'hurried in while I was glancing at them, "'and coming straight up to the mother, said, "'Jenny! Jenny!' "'The mother rose on being so addressed, "'and fell upon the woman's neck. "'She also had upon her face and arms "'the marks of ill-usage. "'She had no kind of grace about her, "'but the grace of sympathy. "'But when she condoled with the woman, and her own tears fell, she wanted no beauty. I say condoled, but her only words were, "'Jenny! Jenny!' All the rest was in the tone in which she said them. I thought it very touching to see these two women, coarse and shabby and beaten, so united, to see what they could be to one another— "'to see how they felt for one another, "'how the heart of each to each "'was softened by the hard trials of their lives. "'I think the best side of such people "'is almost hidden from us. "'What the poor are to the poor "'is little known, "'excepting to themselves and God. "'We felt it better to withdraw "'and leave them uninterrupted. "'We stole out quietly and without notice from anyone "'except the man.' He was leaning against the wall near the door, and finding that there was scarcely room for us to pass, went out before us. He seemed to want to hide that he did this on our account, but we perceived that he did, and thanked him. He made no answer. Ada was so full of grief all the way home, and Richard, whom we found at home, was so distressed to see her in tears, though he said to me when she was not present how beautiful it was, too as we arranged to return at night, with some little comforts, and repeat our visit at the brickmaker's house. We said as little as we could to Mr. Jarndyce, but the wind changed directly. Richard accompanied us at night to the scene of our morning expedition. On our way there, we had to pass a noisy drinking-house, where a number of men were flocking about the door. Among them, and prominent in some dispute, was the father of the little child— At a short distance we passed the young man and the dog, in congenial company. The sister was standing laughing and talking with some other young women at the corner of the row of cottages, but she seemed ashamed, and turned away as we went by. We left our escort within sight of the brickmaker's dwelling, and proceeded by ourselves. When we came to the door, we found the woman who had brought such consolation with her, standing there, looking anxiously out. "'Is it you?' "'Young ladies, is it?' she said in a whisper. "'I'm a-watching for my master. My heart's in my mouth. If he was to catch me away from home, he'd pretty near murder me.' "'Do you mean your husband?' said I. "'Yes, miss, my master.' "'Jenny's asleep. Quiet worn out she scarcely had the child off her lap poor thing these seven days and nights except when i've been able to take it for a minute or two as she gave way for us she went softly in and put what we had brought near the miserable bed on which the mother slept no effort had been made to clean the room it seemed in its nature almost hopeless of being clean. But the small waxen form from which so much solemnity diffused itself had been composed afresh, and washed, and neatly dressed in some fragments of white linen, and on my handkerchief, which still covered the poor baby, a little bunch of sweet herbs had been laid by the same rough, scarred hands, so lightly, so tenderly. May heaven reward you, we said to her. You are a good woman. Me, young ladies? She returned with surprise. Hush, Jenny, Jenny. The mother had moaned in her sleep and moved. The sound of the familiar voice seemed to calm her again. She was quiet once more. How little I thought, when I raised my handkerchief to look upon the tiny sleeper underneath, and seemed to see a halo shine around the child through ada's drooping hair as her pity bent her head how little i thought in whose unquiet bosom that handkerchief would come to lie after covering the motionless and peaceful breast i only thought that perhaps the angel of the child might not be all unconscious of the woman who replaced it with so compassionate a hand not all unconscious of her presently when we had taken leave, and left her at the door, by turns looking, and listening in terror for herself, and saying in her old soothing manner, Jenny, Jenny. End of chapter 8 Chapter nine of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter nine. Signs and Tokens. I don't know how it is I seem to be always writing about myself. I mean all the time to write about other people, and I try to think about myself as little as possible. And I am sure, when I find myself coming into the story again, I am really vexed, and say, Dear, dear, you tiresome little creature, I wish you wouldn't. But it is all of no use. I hope any one who may read what I write will understand that if these pages contain a great deal about me, I can only suppose it must be because I have really something to do with them, and can't be kept out.' "'My darling and I read together, and worked, and practised, and found so much employment "'for our time, that the winter days flew by us like bright-winged birds. "'Generally in the afternoons, and always in the evenings, Richard gave us his company. "'Although he was one of the most restless creatures in the world, he certainly was very "'fond of our society. "'He was very, very, very fond of Ada. "'I mean it, and I had better say it at once.' I had never seen any young people falling in love before, but I found them out quite soon. I could not say so, of course, or show that I knew anything about it. On the contrary, I was so demure, and used to seem so unconscious, that sometimes I considered within myself, while I was sitting at work, whether I was not growing quite deceitful. But there was no help for it. All I had to do was to be quiet— and I was as quiet as a mouse. They were as quiet as mice, too, so far as any words were concerned. But the innocent manner, in which they relied more and more upon me, as they took more and more to one another, was so charming, that I had great difficulty in not showing how it interested me. "'Our dear little old woman is such a capital old woman,' Richard would say coming up to meet me in the garden early, with this pleasant laugh, and perhaps the least tinge of a blush, that I can't get on without her. Before I begin my harem-scarum day, grinding away at those books and instruments, and then galloping uphill and down dale, all the country round, like a highwayman, it does me so much good to come and have a steady walk with our comfortable friend, that here I am again.' You know, Dame Durden, dear, Ada would say at night, with her head upon my shoulder and the firelight shining in her thoughtful eyes, I don't want to talk when we come upstairs here, only to sit a little while thinking with your dear face for company, and to hear the wind and remember the poor sailors at sea. Ah, perhaps Richard was going to be a sailor we had talked it over very often now and there was some talk of gratifying the inclination of his childhood for the sea mr jarndyce had written to a relation of the family a great sir leicester dedlock for his interest in richard's favour generally and sir leicester had replied in a gracious manner that he would be happy to advance the prospects of the young gentleman if it should ever prove to be within his power which was not at all probable, and that my lady sent her compliments to the young gentleman, to whom she perfectly remembered that she was allied by remote consanguinity, and trusted that he would ever do his duty in any honourable profession to which he might devote himself. "'So I apprehend it's pretty clear,' said Richard to me, "'that I shall have to work my own way. Hmm.' Never mind. Plenty of people have had to do that before now, and have done it. I only wish I had the command of a clipping privateer to begin with, and could carry off the Chancellor and keep him on short allowance until he gave judgment in our cause. He'd find himself growing thin if he didn't look sharp. With a buoyancy and hopefulness and a gaiety that hardly ever flagged, Richard had a carelessness in his character that quite perplexed me, principally "'because he mistook it in such a very odd way for prudence. "'It entered into all his calculations about money in a singular manner "'which I don't think I can better explain than by reverting for a moment "'to our loan to Mr. Skimpole. "'Mr. Jarndyce had ascertained the amount, "'either from Mr. Skimpole himself or from Covince's, "'and had placed the money in my hands with instructions to me "'to retain my own part of it and hand the rest to Richard.' the number of little acts of thoughtless expenditure which richard justified by the recovery of his ten pounds and the number of times he talked to me as if he had saved or realised that amount would form a sum in simple addition my prudent mother howard why not he said to me when he wanted without the least consideration to bestow five pounds on the brickmaker i made ten pounds clear out of covince's business "'How was that?' said I. "'Why, I got rid of ten pounds, which I was quite content to get rid of, and never expected to see any more. You don't deny that?' "'No,' said I. "'Very well. Then I came into possession of ten pounds.' "'The same ten pounds?' I hinted. "'That has nothing to do with it,' returned Richard. I have got ten pounds more than I expected to have, and, consequently, I can afford to spend it without being particular. In exactly the same way, when he was persuaded, out of the sacrifice of these five pounds by being convinced that it would do no good, he carried that sum to his credit, and drew upon it. "'Let me see,' he would say. I saved five pounds out of the Brickmaker's Affair, so if I have a good rattle to London and back in a post-chaise, and put that down at four pounds, I shall have saved one. And it's a very good thing to save one, let me tell you. A penny saved is a penny got.' "'I believe Richards was as frank and generous a nature as there possibly can be.' He was ardent and brave, and in the midst of all his wild restlessness, was so gentle that I knew him like a brother in a few weeks. His gentleness was natural to him, and would have shown itself abundantly, even without Ada's influence. But with it, he became one of the most winning of companions, always so ready to be interested, and always so happy, sanguine, and light-hearted, i am sure that i sitting with them and walking with them and talking with them and noticing from day to day how they went on falling deeper and deeper in love and saying nothing about it and each shyly thinking that this love was the greatest of secrets perhaps not yet suspected even by the other i am sure that i was scarcely less enchanted than they were and scarcely less pleased with the pretty dream "'We were going on in this way, when one morning at breakfast Mr. John Dice received a letter, and, looking at the superscription, said, "'From Boythorne. ay, aye,' and opened and read it, with evident pleasure, announcing to us in a parenthesis, when he was about half-way through, that Boythorne was coming down on a visit. Now, who was Boythorne, we all thought?' and i dare say we all thought too i am sure i did for one would Boythorn at all interfere with what was going forward i went to school with this fellow lawrence boythorne said mr jarndyce tapping the letter as he laid it on the table more than five and forty years ago he was then the most impetuous boy in the world and he is now the most impetuous man "'He was then the loudest boy in the world, and he is now the loudest man. "'He was then the heartiest and sturdiest boy in the world, "'and he is now the heartiest and sturdiest man. "'He is a tremendous fellow.' "'In stature, sir?' asked Richard. "'Pretty well, Rick, in that respect.' said Mr. Jarndyce, being some ten years older than I, and a couple of inches taller, with his head thrown back like an old soldier, his stalwart chest squared, his hands like a clean blacksmith's, and his lungs-there's no simile for his lungs-talking, laughing, or snoring, they make the beams of the house shake. As Mr. Jarndyce sat enjoying the image of his friend Boythorn, We observed the favourable omen, that there was not the least indication of any change in the wind. "'But it's the inside of the man, the warm heart of the man, the passion of the man, the fresh blood of the man, Rick, and Ada, and little Cobweb, too, for you are all interested in a visitor that I speak of.' He pursued. "'His language is as sounding as his voice.' He is always in extremes, perpetually in the superlative degree. In his condemnation he is all ferocity. You might suppose him to be an ogre, from what he says, and I believe he has the reputation of one with some people. There, I tell you no more of him beforehand. You must not be surprised to see him take me under his protection, for he has never forgotten that I was a low boy at school, and that our friendship began in his knocking two of my head-tyrant's teeth out he says six, before breakfast. Boythorn and his man, to me, will be here this afternoon, my dear. I took care that the necessary preparations were made for Mr. Boythorn's reception, and we looked forward to his arrival with some curiosity. The afternoon wore away, however, and he did not appear. The dinner hour arrived, and still he did not appear. The dinner was put back an hour— and we were sitting round the fire with no light but the blaze when the hall-door suddenly burst open and the hall resounded with these words uttered with the greatest vehemence and in a stentorian tone "'We have been misdirected, John Dice, by a most abandoned ruffian, "'who told us to take the turning to the right, instead of to the left. "'He is the most intolerable scoundrel on the face of the earth. "'His father must have been the most consummate villain ever to have such a son. "'I would have had that fellow shot without the least remorse.' "'Did he do it on purpose?' "'Mr. John Dice inquired.' "'I have not the slightest doubt that the scoundrel has passed his whole existence in misdirecting travellers, returned the other. "'By my soul, I thought him the worst-looking dog i ever beheld when he was telling me to take the turning to the right. And yet I stood before that fellow face to face, and didn't knock his brains out.' A teeth, uh, you mean?' said Mr. Jarndyce. laughed mr lawrence boythorn really making the whole house vibrate what have you not forgotten it yet Uh, "'And that was another most consummate vagabond. "'By my soul, the countenance of that fellow when he was a boy "'was the blackest image of perfidy, cowardice, and cruelty "'ever set up as a scarecrow in a field of scoundrels. "'If I were to meet that most unparalleled despot "'in the streets to-morrow, I would fell him like a rotten tree.' "'I have no doubt of it.' said mr jarndyce. Now, will you come upstairs? By my soul, jarndyce, returned his guest, who seemed to refer to his watch, if you had been married, I would have turned back at the garden-gate and gone away to the remotest summits of the Himalaya mountains sooner than I would have presented myself at this unseasonable hour. Not quite so far, I hope, said mr jarndyce by my life and honour yes cried the visitor i wouldn't be guilty of the audacious insolence of keeping a lady of the house waiting all this time for any earthly consideration i would infinitely rather destroy myself infinitely rather talking thus they went upstairs and presently we heard him in his bedroom thundering and again, <laughs> until the flattest echo in the neighbourhood seemed to catch the contagion, and to laugh as enjoyingly as he did, or as we did, when we heard him laugh. We all conceived a prepossession in his favour, for there was a sterling quality in his laugh, and in his vigorous healthy voice, and in the roundness and fullness of which he uttered every word he spoke and in the very fury of his superlatives would seem to go off like blank cannons and hurt nothing but we were hardly prepared to have it so confirmed by his appearance when mr Jarndyce presented him he was not only a very handsome old gentleman upright and stalwart as he had been described to us with a massive grey head a fine composure of face when silent a figure that might have become corpulent but for his being so continually in earnest That he gave it no rest, and a chin that might have subsided into a double chin, but for the vehement emphasis in which it was constantly required to assist. But he was such a true gentleman in his manner, so chivalrously polite. His face was lighted by a smile of so much sweetness and tenderness, and it seemed so plain that he had nothing to hide, but showed himself exactly as he was, incapable, as Richard said, of anything on a limited scale, and firing away with those blank great guns because he carried no small arms whatever, that really I could not help looking at him with equal pleasure as he sat at dinner, whether he smilingly conversed with Ada and me, or was led by Mr. Jarndyce into some great volley of superlatives, or threw up his head like a bloodhound and gave out that tremendous ha! 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 you have brought your bird with you, I suppose said mr jarndyce by heaven he is the most astonishing bird in europe replied the other he is the most wonderful creature i wouldn't take ten thousand guineas for that bird i have left an annuity for his sole support in case he should outlive me he is in sense and attachment a phenomenon and his father before him was one of those astonishing birds that ever lived "'The subject of this laudation was a very little canary, who was so tame that he was brought down by Mr. Boythorne's man on his forefinger, and after taking a gentle flight round the room, alighted on his master's head. "'To hear Mr. Boythorne presently expressing the most implacable and passionate sentiments, with this fragile might of a creature quietly perched on his forehead, was to have a good illustration of his character, I thought.' "'By my soul, John Dice, he said, very gently holding up a bit of bread to the canary to peck at. "'If I were in your place, I would seize the remastering chancery by the throat to-morrow morning, and shake him until his money rolled out of his pockets and his bones rattled in his skin. I would have a settlement out of somebody, by fair means or by foul.' "'If you would empower me to do it, I would do it for you with the greatest satisfaction.' All this time the very small canary was eating out of his hand. "'I thank you, Lawrence, but the suit is hardly at such a point at present,' returned Mr. Jarndyce, laughing, "'that it would be greatly advanced, even by the legal process of shaking the bench and the whole bar.' "There never was such an infernal cauldron as that Chancery on the face of the earth," said Mister Boythorn nothing but a mine below it on a busy day in term-time with all its records rules and precedents collected in it and every functionary belonging to it also high and low upward and downward from its son the accountant-general to its father the devil and the whole blown to atoms with ten thousand hundredweight of gunpowder would reform it in the least It was impossible not to laugh at the energetic gravity with which he recommended this strong measure of reform. When we laughed, he threw up his head, and shook his broad chest, and again the whole country seemed to echo to (laughs) his— It had not the least effect in disturbing the bird— whose sense of security was complete and who hopped about the table with its quick head now on this side and now on that turning its bright sudden eye on its master as if he were no more than another bird but how do you and your neighbour get on about the disputed right of way said mr jarndyce you are not free from the toils of the law yourself the fellow has brought actions against me And I have brought actions against him for trespass. Returned, Mister Boythorn. By heaven, he is the proudest fellow breathing. It is morally impossible that his name can be Sir Leicester. It must be Sir Lucifer. A complimentary to our distant relation," said my guardian laughingly to Ada and Richard. "'I would beg Miss Clare's pardon, and Mr. Carstone's pardon,' resumed our visitor, "'if I were not reassured, by seeing in the fair face of the lady, and the smile of the gentleman that it is quite unnecessary, and that they keep their distant relation at a comfortable distance. "'Or he keeps us,' suggested Richard. "'By my soul!' exclaimed Mr. Boythorn, suddenly firing another volley. "'That fellow is—and his father was—and his grandfather was—the most stiff-necked, arrogant, imbecile, pig-headed numskull ever, by some inexplicable mistake of nature, born in any station of life but a walking-stick's. The whole of that family are the most solemnly conceited and consummate blockheads.'
0: "'But it's no
1: matter?' he should not shut up my path if he were fifty baronets melted into one and living in a hundred chesney wolds one within another like the ivory balls in a chinese carving a fellow by his agent or secretary or somebody writes to me, Sir Lester, Dedlock baronet, presents his compliments to Mr. Lawrence Boythorne, and has to call his attention to the fact that the green pathway by the old parsonage house, now the property of Mr. Lawrence Boythorn, is Sir Lester's right of way, being in fact a portion of the park of Chesney Bold, and that Sir Lester finds it convenient to close up the same. I write to the fellow— Mr. Lawrence Boythorne presents his compliments to Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, and has to call his attention to the fact that he totally denies the whole of Sir Lester Dedlock's positions on every possible subject, and has to add, in reference to closing up the pathway, that he will be glad to see the man who may undertake to do it. The fellow sends a most abandoned villain, with one eye, to construct a gateway. I play upon that execrable scoundrel with a fire-engine, until the breath is nearly driven out of his body. The fellow erects a gate in the night. I chop it down and burn it in the morning. He sends his myrmidons to come over the fence and pass and repass. I catch them in humane man-traps, fire-split. "'pease at their legs, play upon them with the engine, "'resolve to free mankind from the insupportable burden "'of the existence of those lurking ruffians. "'He brings actions for trespass. "'I bring actions for trespass. "'He brings actions for assault and battery. "'I defend them and continue to assault and batter. (laughs) "'To hear him say all this, with unimaginable energy, one might have thought him the angriest of mankind. "'To see him at the very same time, looking at the bird now perched upon his thumb, and softly smoothing its feathers with his forefinger, one might have thought him the gentlest. "'To hear him laugh, and see the broad good nature of his face, then, one might have supposed that he had not a care in the world, or a dispute, or a dislike, but that his whole existence was a summer joke.' "'No, no,' he said, "'no closing up of my paths by any Dedlock, "'though I willingly confess.' "'Here he softened in a moment, "'that Lady Dedlock is the most accomplished lady in the world, "'to whom I would do any homage that a plain gentleman, "'and no baronet with a head seven hundred years thick may. "'A man!' who joined his regiment at twenty and within a week challenged the most imperious and presumptuous coxcomb of a commanding officer that ever drew the breath of life through a tight waist and got broke for it is not the man to be walked over by all the sir lucifers dead or alive locked or unlocked <laughs> "'Nor the man to allow his junior to be walked over, either,' said my guardian. "'Most assuredly not,' said Mr. Boythorn, clapping him on the shoulder, with an air of protection that had something serious in it, though he laughed. "'He will stand by the low-boy always, John Dice. You may rely upon him. "'But speaking of this trespass—' "'with apologies to Miss Clare and Miss Summerson for the length at which I have pursued so dry a subject. "'Is there nothing for me from your men, Kenge and Carboy?' "'I think not, Esther,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'Nothing, guardian?' "'Much obliged,' said Mr. Boythorn. "'Had no need to ask.' "'after even my slight experience of Miss Summerson's forethought for every one about her. "'They all encouraged me. They were determined to do it. "'I inquired, because, coming from Lincolnshire, I, of course, have not yet been in town, "'and I thought some letters might have been sent down here. "'I dare say they will report progress to-morrow morning.' "'I saw him so often in the course of the evening, which passed very pleasantly, contemplate Richard and Ada with an interest and a satisfaction that made his fine face remarkably agreeable, as he sat at a little distance from the piano, listening to the music. And he had small occasion to tell us that he was passionately fond of music, for his face showed it, that I asked my guardian, as we sat at the back gammon ward, whether Mr. Boythorne had ever been married. "'No,' said he. "'No,' "'But he meant to be,' said I. "'How did you find out that?' He returned with a smile. "'Why, guardian,' I explained, not without reddening a little at hazarding what was in my thoughts, "'there is something so tender in his manner, after all, and he is so very courtly and gentle to us, and—' Mr. Jarndyce directed his eyes to where he was sitting, as I have just described him. I said no more.' "'You are right, little woman,' he answered. "'He was all but married once, long ago, and once.' "'Did the lady die?' "'No, but she died to him. "'That time has had its influence on all his later life. "'Would you suppose him to have a head and a heart full of romance yet?' "'I think, guardian, "'I might have supposed so, but it is easy to say that, when you have told me so.' "'He has never since been what he might have been,' said Mr. Jarndyce, "'And now you see him in his age, with no one near him but his servant and his little yellow friend. It's your through, my dear.' "'I felt, from my guardian's manner, that beyond this point I could not pursue the subject without changing the wind. "'I, therefore, forbore to ask any further questions. "'I was interested, but not curious. "'I thought a little while about this old love-story in the night, "'when I was awakened by Mr. Boythorn's lusty snoring. "'And I tried to do that very difficult thing, "'imagine old people young again, "'and invested with the graces of youth. "'But I fell asleep before I had succeeded, "'and dreamed of the days when I lived in my godmother's house.' i am not sufficiently acquainted with such subjects to know whether it is at all remarkable that i almost always dreamed of that period of my life with the morning there came a letter from messrs kenge and carboy to mr boythorne informing him that one of their clerks would wait upon him at noon as it was the day of the week on which i paid the bills and added up my books and made all the household affairs as compact as possible i remained at home while mr jarndyce ada and richard took advantage of a very fine day to make a little excursion mr boythorne was to wait for kenge and carboy's clerk and then was to go on foot to meet them on their return well i was full of business examining tradesmen's books adding up columns, paying money, filing receipts, and, I dare say, making a great bustle about it, when Mr. Guppy was announced and shown in. I had had some idea that the clerk who was to be sent down might be the young gentleman who had met me at the coach office, and I was glad to see him, because he was associated with my present happiness. I scarcely knew him again. He was so uncommonly smart. He had an entirely new suit of glossy clothes on, a shining hat, lydic kid gloves, a neckerchief of a variety of colours, a large hot-house flower in his buttonhole, and a thick gold ring on his little finger. Besides which, he quite scented the dining-room with bear's grease and other perfumery. He looked at me with an attention that quite confused me when I begged him to take a seat, until the servant should return. And as he sat there, crossing and uncrossing his legs in a corner, and I asked him if he had had a pleasant ride, and hoped that Mr. Kenge was well, I never looked at him but I found him looking at me, in the same scrutinising and curious way. When the request was brought to him that he would go upstairs to Mr. Boythorne's room, I mentioned that he would find lunch prepared for him when he came down, of which Mr. Jarndyce hoped he would partake. He said, with some embarrassment, holding the handle of the door, "'Shall I have the honour of finding you here, miss?' I replied, yes, I should be there, and he went out with a bow and another look." I thought him only awkward and shy, for he was evidently much embarrassed, and I fancied that the best thing I could do would be to wait until I saw that he had everything he wanted, and then to leave him to himself. The lunch was soon brought, but it remained for some time on the table. The interview with Mr. Boythorn was a long one, and a stormy one, too. I should think, for although his room was at some distance, I heard his loud voice rising every now and then like a high wind, and evidently blowing perfect broadsides of denunciation. At last Mr. Guppy came back, looking something the worse for the conference. "'My eye, miss,' he said in a low voice, "'he's a tartar.' "'Pray take some refreshment, sir,' said I. "'Mr. Guppy sat down at the table, and began nervously sharpening the carving-knife on the carving-fork, still looking at me, as I felt quite sure without looking at him, in the same unusual manner. The sharpening lasted so long that at last I felt a kind of obligation on me to raise my eyes in order that I might break the spell under which he seemed to labour of not being able to leave off. He immediately looked at the dish, and began to carve.' "'What will you take yourself, miss? "'You'll have a morsel or something?' Uh, "'No, thank you,' said I. sha not I give you a piece of anything at all, miss?' said Mr. Guppy, hurriedly drinking off a glass of wine. Uh, "'Nothing, thank you,' said I. "'I have only waited to see that you have everything you want. "'Is there anything I can order for you?' "'No.' "'I'm much obliged to you, miss, I'm sure. "'I've everything that I can require to make me comfortable. "'At least I—not comfortable. "'I'm never that.' "'He drank off two more glasses of wine, one after another. "'I thought I had better go.' "'I beg your pardon, miss,' said Mr. Guppy, rising when he saw me rise. "'But would you allow me the favour of a minute's private conversation?' "'Not knowing what to say, I sat down again. "'What follows is without prejudice, miss,' said Mr. Guppy, anxiously bringing a chair towards my table. "'I I don't understand what you mean,' said I, wondering. "'It's uh, one of our law terms, miss. You won't make any use of it to my detriment at Kenjin Carboys, or elsewhere. If our conversation shouldn't lead to anything, I am to be as I was, and am not to be prejudiced in my situation or worldly prospects. In short—' "'It's in total confidence.' "'I am at a loss, sir,' said I, "'to imagine what you can have to communicate in total confidence to me, "'whom you have never seen but once. "'But I should be very sorry to do you any injury.' "'Thank you, miss. I am sure of it. That's quite sufficient.' "'All this time Mr. Guppy was either planing his forehead with his handkerchief, "'or tightly rubbing the palm of his left hand with the palm of his right.' "'If you would excuse my taking another glass of wine, miss, I think it might assist me in getting on without a continual choke, that cannot fail to be mutually unpleasant.' He did so, and came back again. I took the opportunity of moving well behind my table. "'You wouldn't allow me to offer you one, would you, miss?' said Mr. Guppy, apparently refreshed. "'Not any,' said I. "'Not half a glass?' said Mr. Guppy. "'Horter?' "'No? Then, <clears throat> to proceed. My present salary, Miss Summerson, a Kenji Carboys, is two pound a week. When I first had the happiness of looking upon you, it was one-fifteen, and had stood at that figure for a lengthened period. A rise of five has since taken place, and a further rise of five is guaranteed at the expiration of a term not exceeding twelve months from the present date.' My mother has a little property, which takes the form of a small life annuity, upon which she lives in an independent, though unassuming manner, in the old street-road. She is eminently calculated for a mother-in-law. She never interferes, is all for peace, and her disposition easy. She has her failings, as who has not, but I never knew her do it when company was present, at which time you may freely trust her with wines, spirits, or malt liquors. "'My own abode is lodgings at Penton Place, Pentonville. "'It is lowly, but airy, open at the back, "'and considered one of the healthiest outlets. "'Miss Summerson, in the mildest language, I adore you. "'Would you be so kind as to allow me, as I may say, "'to file a declaration, to make an offer?' "'Mr. Guppy went down on his knees.' "'I was well behind my table, and not much frightened. "'I said, "'Get up from that ridiculous position immediately, sir, "'or you will oblige me to break my implied promise and ring the bell.' "'Ear me out, miss,' said Mr. Guppy, folding his hands. "'I cannot consent to hear another word, sir,' I returned, "'unless you get up from the carpet directly, "'and go and sit down at the table, as you ought to do, "'if you have any sense at all.' "'He looked piteously, but slowly rose, and did so. "'Yet, what a mockery it is, miss,' he said, with his hand upon his heart, and shaking his head at me in a melancholy manner over the tray, "'to be stationed behind food such a moment. The soul recoils from food at such a moment, miss.' "'I beg you to conclude,' said I. "'You have asked me to hear you out, and I beg you to conclude.' "'I will, miss.' said Mr. Guppy. As I love and honour, so likewise I obey. Would that I could make thee the subject of that vow before the shrine. That is quite impossible, said I, and entirely out of the question. I am aware, said Mr. Guppy, leaning forward over the tray and regarding me, as I again strangely felt, though my eyes were not directed to him, with his late intent look, "'I am aware, in a worldly point of view, according to all appearances, my offer is a poor one. But, Miss Summerson, angel, no, don't ring. I have been brought up in a sharp school, and am accustomed to a variety of general practice. Though a young man, I have ferreted out evidence, got up cases, and seen lots of life. Blessed with your hand, what means might I not find of advancing your interests, and pushing your fortunes?' "'What might I not get to know, nearly concerning you? "'I know nothing now, certainly, but what might I not, "'if I had your confidence, and you set me on?' "'I told him that he addressed my interest, "'or what is supposed to be my interest, "'quite as unsuccessfully as he addressed my inclination, "'and he would now understand that I requested him, "'if he pleased, to go away immediately.' "'Cruel miss,' said Mr. Guppy, "'Here, but another word. "'I think you must have seen that I was struck with those charms "'on the day when I waited at the whiter cellar. "'I think you must have remarked that I could not forbear a tribute to those charms "'when I put up the steps of the acne coach. "'It was a feeble tribute to thee, but it was well meant. "'Thy image has ever since been fixed in my breast. "'I have walked up and down of an evening opposite Jellyby's house.' "'only to look upon the bricks that once contained thee. "'This out of to-day, quite an unnecessary out, "'so far as the attendance, which was its pretended object, went, "'was planned by me alone, for thee alone. "'If I speak of interest, it is only to recommend myself "'and my respectful wretchedness. "'Love was before it, and is before it.' "'I should be pained, Mr. Guppy,' said I, "'rising and putting my hand upon the bell-rope to do you or any one who is sincere the injustice of slighting any honest feeling however disagreeably expressed if you have really meant to give me a proof of your good opinion though ill-timed and misplaced i feel that i ought to thank you i have very little reason to be proud and i am not proud i hope i think i added without very well knowing what i said "'that you will now go away, as if you had never been so exceedingly foolish, "'and attend to Messrs. Kenge and Carboy's business.' "'Half a minute, miss,' cried Mr. Guppy, checking me as I was about to ring. "'This has been, without prejudice.' "'I will never mention it,' said I, "'unless you should give me future occasion to do so.' Uh, "'A quarter of a minute, miss, in case you should think better, at any time, however distant.' "'That's no consequence, for my feelings can never alter. "'Of anything I have said, particularly what might I not do, "'Mr. William Gappy, 87, Penton Place, or if removed, or dead, "'of blighted hopes or anything of that sort, "'care of Mrs. Gappy, 302 Old Street Road, will be sufficient.' "'I rang the bell, the servant came, "'and Mr. Gappy, laying his written card upon the table "'and making a dejected bow,' departed. Raising my eyes as he went out, I once more saw him looking at me, after he had passed the door. I sat there for another hour or more, finishing my books and payments, and getting through plenty of business. Then I arranged my desk, and put everything away, and was so composed and cheerful, that I thought I had quite dismissed this unexpected incident. But, when I went upstairs to my own room— I surprised myself by beginning to laugh about it, and then surprised myself still more by beginning to cry about it. In short, I was in a flutter for a little while, and felt as if an old cord had been more coarsely touched than it ever had been since the days of the dear old doll, long buried in the garden. End of chapter 9